That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Gonzano's Bald Face Truth. So last night in the NBA, we had two scores score more than 60 points on the same day. Uh, you had Carl Anthony Towns, you had Joel Embiid become just the fourth player of NBA players to each score at least 60 points on the same day, first since David Thompson had 73, and uh, George the Iceman Gervin scored 63 in 1978. Long time coming. But was it a good day for the NBA? I mean, it caught the attention of NBA players, and but Minneapolis head coach uh, not too happy. Chris Finch saying it was an embarrassing display. It was an absolute disgusting performance of defense and immature basketball um, all the way through the game. So it really didn't slip away. It had been there from the jump. So this is what happens when you uh, have this type of approach. Carl Anthony Towns um, obviously had a big night, and he was upstaged by Joel Embiid. But I think it raises questions about just in general, the entertainment value of the NBA, uh, the, the, you know, the, the sports center um, influence on basketball in general, and I, what we've heard in the last few days, and, and a refrain that we have heard for several years around the league about players who are highly skilled but don't know how to play team basketball. Now, Finch lit into his team after the game. He said it was disgusting. It was immature. You heard him there. Um, his team stopped looking for you know the opportunity to make the right play and instead just uh, kept trying to feed Carl Anthony Towns, who took 35 shots, including 15 threes, and had a big night, right? But to his credit, after the game, Towns said it didn't feel very good or historic given that they lost the game. There's something that has changed in Minneapolis and in Minnesota. They're the first-place team in the Western Conference, one of the best teams in the NBA, um, not taking a moral victory, not taking a silver lining, not taking a great night for a personal uh, output. I think Portland fans in general who had seen Damian Lillard go for 50 and 60 um, on, a, on a semi-regular basis can kind of look at that and go, yeah, you know what, I understand kind of why the head coach would be upset wanting to have a team victory rather than an individual performance. Now, Stephen... You're my go-to on the NBA, and big night for Joel Embiid, who, you know, scores 70 points against the Spurs. It was the 18th anniversary of when Kobe had 81. This kind of stuff tends to happen in the NBA. It's a little bit of theater to it. But was it good night or bad night for the NBA last night in watching two players have historic nights and one coach belly aching about it afterwards. I think it's a good night. The NBA is all about drama, John. And so anytime the NBA is being talked about in the national stage, I think they enjoy it. Um, I do think that it was pretty interesting that Chris Finch called out his team and said it was an embarrassing performance. Now he said it mostly defensively, 
But I think it was more like, hey, we can't just give the ball to one guy. Like that's just not how the that's not how basketball is played. We can't just force feed people and try and get all these points. But I do think ultimately the NBA enjoys it. The NBA likes to have the drama. The NBA wants to be in you know in the forefront, and they're talking about all these records and how it goes down. So I, I think they are happy with it with the performances that the Joel Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns had last night. But I don't know that it's necessarily good for the actual game of basketball. Like, yeah, we're going to celebrate Carl Anthony Towns scoring 62 points. They also lost to the Hornets, who are the worst team, one of the worst teams in the NBA. And, it, you know, that's a, that's a team that you should beat every single time at home if you're the Minnesota Timberwolves. But, yeah, we're going to celebrate 62 points. I, I do think it should be more about winning, especially on the professional level. Like, we talk about this, you know, we were talking about, you know, uh, kids playing and how it's all about winning. Well, that's different. I think on the NBA level, when you get to this level, you get paid this type of money. It is about winning, and it is about you know actually the scoreboard. So we shouldn't be celebrating a 62 point loss. We should be celebrating you know more of a Joel Embiid scoring 70 and helping his team win because they you know they were in that game. The Spurs were, and they needed all 70 points out of him. Highly skilled athletes playing in the NBA. Great skills. Great ball handling. Uh, but. But a lot of um, individual play, and I think it sometimes turns people off to see players who have um, you know historic performances or big loud performances while their teams are losing. Uh, certainly, uh, the coach of the Timberwolves gets in that crowd. Greg Popovich recently was talking about the coaching he's having to do. It's a very different kind of coaching uh, that and teaching than he's than he had to do in the past. There's more, more. Uh fundamental teaching done now than I had to do when we were a championship caliber team. Uh, that was more uh, making decisions during games, calling a certain play, drawing a certain play, making a certain substitution, uh, looking for mismatches. You know, the, the, the mechanics of the game of chess while the game is going on, because those guys knew what they were doing <clears throat> and they were fundamentally sound. These guys are neophytes, and we're not at that stage. So this is more positioning on the court, spatial relationships, man and ball, all the stuff that they would do in college, but they didn't go there. And if they did, they went for a year. So it's a different kind of teaching. The game stuff uh, I don't get to do quite as often uh, as before. And it makes me kind of wonder about the caliber of play in the NBA. And I'm not saying, like, among the high-level teams come playoff time, but just in general, the overall caliber of play, rank-and-file game, early part of the season, let's just say early third of the season, if if Greg Popovich is telling us that he's having to do coaching and talk about spatial awareness and uh, how you play defense when, you know, your guy doesn't have the ball, where, you know, positioning – and you know defensive scheme and he's talking about stuff that yeah you would have thought that most of the players would have picked up in high school and in college but he's right in that the like the most gifted players who are drafted every year in the top in the lottery you know 75 80% of the lottery we're talking about one and done players who are sensational athletes and teams that are making speculative bets on said players now i love what the nba's done with d league g league they're they're creating more of a minor league system that can feed into their teams, but that does that's not going to apply to a guy who is coming right out of college out of Kentucky or Duke or North Carolina or Ohio State or Oregon or somebody who's been somewhere one year. It, and it's I think in part why 
you know, we saw some of those players that have played here in the state of Oregon, guys like Peyton Pritchard, guys like Dylan Brooks, um, Jordan Bell, who got to the NBA more game ready and had stayed in college for three and four years and were more game ready and able to participate. Now, I'm not I'm taking away from Carl Anthony Towns and his 62 points. Like, that's a tremendous out, uh, offensive output. And Joel Embiid scoring 70, amazing. But I am also, it's not lost on me. There's so much theater involved with the NBA. There's so much drama and production involved that it sometimes feels a little bit like the WWE in that, you know, you can kind of see it coming. Oh, it's the 18th anniversary of Kobe getting 81. Here's Joel Embiid. Prior to the game, Greg Popovich making comments about it. And lo and behold, here you go. Uh, a Kobe Bryant-like performance from Embiid. Uh, even though I started it. playing late, you know, from the time I started playing, Kobe was my guy. Uh, he's the reason why I started playing uh, basketball. And it's funny because on the same night he had 81, and, you know, um, you know, that was my favorite player. So, you know, when I started, I was the guys that I was looking, you know, I was looking up to, and, you know, they, they were doing all this. Yeah. Look, he, he was dominant against Victor Wembanyama and the Spurs. It was a great performance. He looked unguardable. And, you know, Zach Lowe talked about it. He said he literally broke his mind as he watched him break Wilt Chamberlain's franchise record, um, you know, against, uh, you know, breaking the 76ers franchise record and getting 70 points. He kind of broke my mind, actually, and I just sat there and enjoyed it like a grinning idiot. I mean, what are you going to say? The guy had 70 points. He's shooting 53% on long twos, and it feels like he's shooting 80%. He's basically Dirk Nowitzki from there at this point, and there's just nothing you can do other than reach in the cookie jar and foul him, and he gets to the line a million times a game. He's seen every defense this year. Nick Nurse is putting him in different kinds of positions. You just sit there in awe of what this guy is doing, yeah. which is quite simply producing what is on track to be maybe the greatest mm. scoring season in the history of the sport when you consider his minutes played and the context. It's absolutely crazy what he's doing. He's averaging 36 points a game as a center. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's also contagious. And so here's my prediction. Stephen, I want you to, to remember this. In the next 48 to 72 hours, we're going to see more 50-plus point performances than we've seen in some time in the NBA. I think there's it's a copycat league. I think you're going to see some other superstar players go, okay, let me take my turn. You got Denver and Indiana tonight. You got the, you know, the Knicks in Brooklyn, the Jazz in New Orleans, Portland and Oklahoma City, not looking for too much out of the Blazers, but Lakers, Clippers. I'm looking for big performances in the next 48 to 72 hours. And part of it was I saw the reaction from Kevin Durant. I don't know if you saw it. He's in his post-game news conference last night, and somebody says, hey, Joel Embiid got 70, and his eyes just jaw-dropped, eyes open. He said, 70? Like it, I, and I think you're going to see players try to push the envelope. But in other NBA news, you know, Damian Lillard's got a new head coach, too. Like, for those of you out there that saw Terry Stotts leave the Bucks, uh in training camp, Adrian Griffin, uh, first-year head coach with the Bucks, fired 43 games into the season. Steven, speak to both of those points. Copycatters, will we see them 
And what happened with the Milwaukee Bucks? Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good prediction there. I don't know if it becomes true, but I think it's uh, it's something to watch because the NBA is definitely a one uppers league. Like they want to one up one another, and you know it wouldn't be surprising to see you know a Dame or a Giannis the next time the Bucks play have a big game to prove that well you know what it wasn't our fault that we were uh, you know such a bad defensive team. It was Adrian Griffin's fault. So we're gonna go out. We're gonna dominate our next opponent. So I think you're right on that. I think I think there could be a couple uh, big time scoring outbursts. I think that's uh, it's a fun little theory you got there. And then talking about the Bucks, I mean, look. The Bucks record is 30 and 13. Really good record and we're just over halfway of the season. It was a little shocking that you would fire a first-year head coach in the middle of the season. But I would argue that if you watch the Milwaukee Bucks play, you look at the Milwaukee Bucks defensive numbers, they're not an NBA championship caliber team. 22nd. 22nd in the NBA. Historically, you got to be a top 10 defense in the NBA. That's just what you have to be. That that has been proven over time the last 25 plus years. I believe there's been one time there's been a team that was under the top, under or below a top ten defense in the NBA that won an NBA championship, and I want to say it was the Golden State Warriors when they had Kevin Durant on their team. So they just kind of turned it on because they're the most talented team in the league. The Bucks aren't that, so I do think it was the right choice to fire Adrian Griffin at this point. They obviously were not, you know, reacting to his coaching philosophies on the defensive end last season. The Bucks were fourth in defense. So now I think it's going to be proven, look, maybe it is just because they got a new guy in Damian Lillard and he's not the best defender. That's why the defense is low. Or maybe it is mm. they weren't buying into Adrian Griffin. The jury is still out, John. I don't know what the correct answer is, but we're going to find out. We're going to find out if it was all the players weren't buying into Adrian Griffin or we're going to find out if it was just the new guy comes in and the defense falls because Dame has only been on one or two really good defenses with the Portland Trailblazers in his entire career. Yeah, like he's, he's not a good defender. He's, he's a bad defender. He's, he's been, a, a, on he's his been good on a nights, top 10 he's, defense. He's, he's mediocre on his good nights. Yeah, he's and, been, he's been on one top 10 defense with the Trailblazers, and that's it in his entire career. So it is easy to say, you know what, Dame comes over and then the defense gets bad. He's not thinking about defense. I mean, and, and he's not the only NBA player who doesn't isn't – putting all of his effort and all his focus on that end of the court. But think about what Milwaukee's been through, all right? And, you know, in Portland, we're having a a much different discussion about the NBA team where people would just love for the Trailblazers to have the kind of problems that the Milwaukee Bucks are having, right? They're number two in the Eastern Conference. They're 30-13, and best winning percentage for a team that has fired its head coach since David Blatt was fired by the Cavs in 2015-2016. That's... That is a good record, good team. It tells you one of two things. Either he doesn't have the locker room and there's a mutiny afoot, or secondarily that the expectations in Milwaukee are so high that 30-13 and and being a poor defensive team, 22nd in defensive efficiency, isn't going to get it done. And I want to say it's mostly the latter, that the expectations are so high that they have a different set of expectations than a lot of the league. Remember, they they got rid of Mike uh, Budenholzer, the the coach who had taken them to the finals. They 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 got rid of him last year after a first round exit, right? And everybody was like, "Oh my gosh, quick trigger!" Then they pulled the trade for Lillard. I think it just put a lot of pressure on a first year coach. To come in and get it right. Are those expectations fair, though? To have a first-year head coach, a brand-new star player, Dame come over and expect no. to be a great team? No, it's it's insanity. I mean, the you know the the, the combination of firing you know Budenholzer, who took them to a championship level, got them to the finals, and to to get rid of that guy because they're in the first round. It's kind of a what have you done for us lately move, and and. 
they, they probably should have stayed with him. But then you add in the complexity of adding Damian Lillard to the to the mix, and then you give it to a 49-year-old first-time, first-year coach who had been a longtime NBA assistant and played in the league a while. I just think it was a recipe for, like, you know, you better get this right, and if you don't, 43 games in, 30 and 13 is not going to be enough. I got to think the guy was surprised by getting uh, fired, but I also think, look, remember, in the early part of the season, it, you know, we're in training camp. Terry Stotts is announced as a Bucks assistant coach. He's having a conversation with Giannis and Damian Lillard at a practice. Um, you know, you, you, Griffin, Adrian Griffin doesn't like it, sees it, uh, you know, he, he's threatened by it. He gets in a uh, disagreement, at least, uh, with Terry Stotts over it. And Stotts says, I don't need it. I can be sitting on a beach somewhere. He leaves. Um, I don't think Terry Stotts was going to make the defense any better. That was one of the problems he had in Portland is he's an offensive-minded coach. He's an offensive coordinator. But I just think the writing was on the wall for Adrian Griffin. It was like, win big or you're in big trouble. Now, Kendrick Perkins thinks that Griffin just had a hard time getting through in the locker room. The writing has been on the wall since the start of the season, right? When you look at the Bucks' defense, it has been horrible. So bad that when we're watching, when I'm watching the game with my kids, I make them go to bed because I don't want them to see that type of defensive effort. And the fact of the matter is, is that Adrian Griffin never had a voice and never had the locker room from the start of training camp. And now we're seeing this happen, which is still surprising. Very interesting to see this happen at this point of the season with the Bucks. There's talk about them pivoting to Doc Rivers, maybe some others. We'll see what they do. All right, coming up, we're going to Arizona. Michael Lev is a columnist at the Arizona Daily Star. He's going to tell us what the heck is going on with, at the University of Arizona, where the athletic director, Dave Hickey, was relieved of his duties yesterday. Uh, we'll talk with Michael Lev about you know the departure of Jed Fish, uh, the idea that Brent Brennan has been hired, is he seeing it as a good hire? And the state of college athletics in general, how much and how fast has college changed? Later in the program, we're going to visit with a former NBA player who will tell us that he was illiterate in college, went to the NBA, played three seasons. It's a hell of a story. Dean Tolson's written a book about it. He'll be joining us at 4 o'clock. I want you here for it. Leave it here. Big basketball game on Saturday in Eugene as Arizona is heading to Matthew Knight Arena. Dana Alban and the Ducks will be at home Saturday, Arizona State, uh, against the Ducks on Thursday. And, uh, of course, uh, Michael Lev, the senior writer and columnist for the Arizona Daily Star, will uh, help us set the scene a little bit. A lot going on with Arizona. they got a new football coach in Brent Brennan, Jed Fish off to Washington, Dave Hickey, the athletic director, out uh, as of yesterday. The news broke yesterday. Michael Lev joining us now. How are you? You've been busy. Uh, you think? <laughs> Where do it's we start? Like, like every other day, it feels like something something catastrophic is happening. Well, yeah, just when you think it, it it's not happening, that's that's when the big news breaks. Uh, Michael, help us out a little bit. Let's let's go back to Jed Fish's departure. How how did that all feel to you? That swirl and fish and out the door, and you got a uh, you got a highly involved booster who gets in, you know, is getting involved, feels jilted, and 
Just what has that whirlwind in general on the football side at Arizona felt like? Yeah, I mean, we all saw the dominoes start to fall, right? When Nick Saban retired from Alabama, Xavier in on Kalen DeBoer at Washington, that opened up the Washington job. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jed hours or so, I think from a Friday, Friday to a Sunday, right? Um, and the weird part about this one was that Arizona and Jed Fish had a, an agreement in principle, as far as I understand. And needed to sign that document, never did. It never made it to and across the finish line. I've heard several different versions of events as to why it didn't happen, who was incentivized not to sign, what were the various reasons, why was Dave Hickey up in Pullman, Washington with men's basketball when this was all happening. Uh, but the bottom line is that it didn't get done, and it really pissed a lot of people off down here. Yeah, we're having a little bit of trouble with Michael Lev's phone. I'm going to let our producer talk to him for a second. But, yeah, I mean, a lot going on in Arizona's world as, you know, the football coach at Alabama decides to step away. Then you have, um, you know, obviously the the wheels start in motion at at the University of Washington where they, they start to go, okay, who are we going to interview? Jed Fish becomes a top-of-mind guy for Washington and all of a sudden, you know, I spoke with a bunch of ADs today. I was on the phone all morning talking to athletic directors and and kind of getting, like, some of the backstory on all of the movement and whether or not Dan Landing was even a candidate at Alabama, all that stuff. And and what becomes clear in talking with the ADs is that they, ADs always had to have a short list of potential candidates that they could line up as, hey, if we're going to hire somebody – and we're going to have to hire quickly. We have to have a short list. But now more than ever with the transfer portal and a 30-day window that opens, it's like a 72-hour thing that you have the ability to go. We're going back to Michael Lev in Tucson now. Michael, all right, so give us an idea. Like, Hickey's up at Pullman. I didn't know that part of it. And, you know, you know, I, I kind of was looking at the finances all along going, hey, is Arizona going to be able to afford to keep Jed Fish? At what point do you get the sense Arizona's in some trouble? Yeah, well, when Washington swoops in, I hope you can hear me better now. Yeah. Um, it has been raining down here, John. We're not used to that, so <laughs> it caused uh, all sorts of technical difficulties. Um, my understanding is that the deal that was on the table for fish was $5.1 million a year over five years, which was a raise of about 40% over what he was making before. And Washington comes in at seven years and $7.75 million. I mean, that's basically putting Fish in the top 15 among all coaches across FBS. I believe that that entire contract is guaranteed as well. I mean, you can't even offer more than a five-year contract to any state employee in Arizona. So, you know, that they couldn't match that money. I was told during the process, if, if he gets a monstrous you know, offer like that, there's nothing we can do unless he wants to stay. I think people wanted Dave Hickey to go back in there and try to raise more money. But as I understand, 
Michael Lev with us, Arizona Daily Star. Um, in the wake of Jed Fish leaving, he decides to go to Washington. Now, very quickly, uh, he, he pivots. And I think he makes a good hire in Brent Brennan. I think he's the right guy, right amount of energy. Um, I eventually want to get to Umberto Lopez in his role. But the hire of Brennan seems to have captured some enthusiasm in, in Tucson. And we do not have Michael Lev. Um, it, you know, I want to pivot immediately then to Humberto Lopez and why he has become a major influence. I think that um, you have boosters who have always been involved in an NIL context. But you now have, I think, the added emphasis of, uh, you know, boosters who are involved more with name image likeness than ever. And I think you have a lot of boosters that are in that conversation that feel like they are, uh, you know, super engaged with this stuff. Now, um, I don't know if you know the story of Umberto Lopez. I did some research on him and because I was curious to like, who is this guy? Why has he emerged as a critical figure at the University of Arizona? Where does what is his background? He seems to be mad at Jed Fish, and I think, you know, our, I was really leaning in on our guest to kind of tell us, give us the setup of this, but I'm just going to jump right into it because his phone's giving, giving him trouble. But, like, you have Humberto Lopez sending a text message to Jed Fish saying, you know, we had a handshake. You were supposed to stay. And then making it kind of his life's mission in the last week to go out and ensure that the players at Arizona – who are, you know, potential flight risks, end up staying at Arizona. Like, Jetfish, you're not taking, um, you know, your quarterback, your receivers, your running back. You're not taking those guys. Loyalty matters. Now, Humberto Lopez's story is interesting. He is born in northern Mexico, in Sonora. He is born into a family. He's one of six children. This is important. His father dies suddenly at the age of 51. Now, Umberto is 11 years old when his dad dies. So he's got five other siblings. His father dies without a will. His mother happens to be an American citizen. So she has no rights to anything that the father owned in Mexico. So they move as a family with nothing to Arizona to live with Lopez's grandmother. The children spoke Spanish, learned English at the local public school. Lopez, again, is 11 years old. He starts working. He's cutting grass. He's selling newspapers. He's cutting down weeds. He's doing whatever he needs to do. And I think this is all important because that kid ends up going to the University of Arizona Business School, gets a degree in accounting, and is armed with this family of origin that was very tight-knit. Okay, and so the fact that like a handshake and looking someone in the eye, a thing in 2024, which becomes less and less bonding. Right. You know, uh, it still means something to me. It still means something to Humberto Lopez, but it probably doesn't mean a whole lot to college football coaches who will tell you what you want to hear. And then when they get a better offer, see you out the door, taking players with them through the portal. 
But Humberto Lopez has got this this story in his family with his mother having to go and be on welfare, and he ends up with an accounting degree, and lo and behold, he becomes, grows up, and becomes one of the largest apartment and hotel owners, property managers, and owners in the country. He has 11 hotels, more than 2,000 rooms, okay? And he becomes a major donor at the University of Arizona. But again, go back to his family of origin, because you'll understand very quickly that handshake... Your word, your name, coming from a family that came from nothing and had to rebuild what they were in the in the United States, uh, you, those things would mean something. Uh, and he's incredibly um, influential at the University of Arizona because he looks at that education and he says, hey, that was part of me making it, you know. And so he has been a big-time donor in Arizona. Now, people will know that he has be emerged as a larger and larger influence in the transfer portal. And when Jed Fish was offered the job by Washington initially, apparently Umberto went to Jed Fish and said, hey, um, I came to the Arizona with nothing. I'm going to leave this world with nothing, and I'm here to help you. And so, you know, he funds a whole bunch of programs on that campus, including the School of Business, and... His, you know, he's he's at every, you know, major event at the University of Arizona. And he's, you know, all around, you know, all these programs in the Lute Olson era of Arizona uh, basketball and Arizona football. He's all over this stuff. And name image likeness is made for Umberto because he can actually get involved in in becoming a very influential person on that campus. His influence has grown. He got an extra hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, at every university's, and and Umberto's hand is in the cookie jar at Arizona. So apparently he has this conversation with Jed Fish, and and he's involved in trying to get the extension done for Fish and get an endorsement deal and a sponsorship and create some extra revenue streams. And Umberto says, look, you know, Jed is apparently telling Umberto how much he wants to stay, and so Umberto says, if you want to stay, shake my hand, look me in the eye, I'll get you what you're looking for. And apparently Jed Fish shook his hand and looked him in the eye. Now, in the subsequent hours, University of Washington ups the ante to over $7 million a year, and Jed Fish jumped. And Umberto, his quote is, quote, I'm very disappointed with Jed Fish. I thought he was a friend. I thought he was a man of his word. We shook hands. Now, there is nothing more dangerous to a college football coach than a donor who has been scorned. And Humberto Lopez has made it his primary focus to help the University of Arizona now retain these players. Now, I don't know if you've seen the text message that Humberto apparently uh, sent to Jed Fish in which he is basically saying, you shook my hand. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not, this isn't going to go well for you. Uh, you know, we are no longer friends, but it goes back. It goes back to his childhood. It goes back to him, you know, saying, you know, I'm going to go out of my way now to make sure that you don't get any of these players. And now you got Noah Fafita, the quarterback, you got McMillan, you got a whole bunch of other players at Arizona who are now staying 
because they sign individual deals with Humberto Lopez. I think this is simultaneously the best thing I've heard all week and the most terrifying thing that I've heard all week because you got a donor who's essentially going out and saying, I'm buying these players. I'm not going to let them go with Jed. And, in fact, I'm going to send a message to Jed and taunt him about it afterwards because he shook my head and he looked me in the eye, and, damn it, that should mean something. Stephen, how do you sort of look or view the actions of Humberto Lopez as it pertains to Arizona? And, by the way, I talked to somebody at Arizona yesterday right when the show ended. I got a phone call from Tucson, and they were like, I said, what is going on with this Humberto Lopez situation? And they said, yeah, we're trying to tell Humberto to kind of tone it down because they don't want the perception that like a donor is actually buying players, but that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah, the whole situation is fascinating for sure with Humberto Lopez, but I feel like if I'm a college football program and I'm a fan of a team, I want a guy like Humberto Lopez in my corner. And it's okay. You talked to um you were talking to head coaches earlier this year and then you know uh, Dan Altman, he said you know, the, it used to be the worst thought was to buy players. Well, now you're buying players. That's just what it is, and I think it's understood. So I think if you have a guy like Humberto Lopez who can go out and can connect with these guys and can buy them and bring in the best talent to Arizona, that's what you want to do, and that's what you got to have. I feel like it's a good stepping stone for Arizona to have a guy like that, and it may untap some type of potential in that program that we always kind of thought was there to be in a consistent type winner and we saw what happened last season when they had the right coach in there they had the right players in there they got to be a top 10 program at the end of the season i think you know what i love the brent brennan hire if they can keep brent brennan they can keep these guys around like they have these last couple seasons you know maybe it turns out to be arizona where they could be you know towards the top of the big 12 so i I, it's a fascinating situation when you have a guy that is willing to spend all the money he has into a program and he like you said he said that he said i came here with nothing i'm leaving with nothing it's a fascinating spot for the Arizona, and if I'm an Arizona fan, I have to be happy that I have a guy like that in our corner ready to go out and get the best talent to bring into our program. Yeah, you got a booster who's got a lot of influence. And you know, I talked to five athletic directors today, and I'm not going to name who they are, but one was in the SEC, two were in the current Pac-12, one was in the Mountain West, um, and I ended up going – down the line asking them very similar questions about the involvement of boosters and NIL. And one of the ADs told me, you got an extra hand in the cookie jar. You do. You, you have to account for this other person who is your major donor, who is trying to or at least wants the illusion that they've got some influence and are, are privy to some information because they're giving so much money and they're important people. Now, I can remember a time here in the state of Oregon, when Phil Knight's involvement at the University of Oregon was viewed as not a good thing. Is it healthy to have a donor who's got this much influence? Is it healthy? Because on one hand, you're making one phone call, and you're raising millions of dollars with one phone call. On the other hand, it's one phone call. And you're not, you're not having like a chorus of 50 or 100 people who were helping you raise that money that maybe are a little more manageable. Uh, But instead, you've got one phone call, and I think a lot of universities are finding that there's an Humberto Lopez in their stable, and they're grateful for it because those NIL collectives are important. But simultaneously, it's it's a little bit scary that, you know, you've got the, the idea that a booster is 
so pissed off. I guess he's motivated. Well, don't you think it matters on who the coach is? Because Lanning has made this comment before how he loves Oregon because the benefits they have. All he has to do if he needs something, he has to make one phone call. He has said that. I've heard him say those two exact words. I think some coaches don't want that. They don't want to have someone have that much power in their program where some people don't mind it and they can deal with it. I, I think you know you look at a guy uh, like Dan Lanning. Exactly. He wants that. He wants where he can call one person and say, I need this and get it. Where I think if you look at a Nick Saban, maybe he didn't want that. Maybe he doesn't want a guy that has all that power over him. He wants to be the ultimate guy in control. I think it's fascinating. I think it's just beginning. I think we're going to see uh, more Umberto Lopez's raise their voices. But keep in mind, like, you know, Anna and I always talk about family of origin. We think it's so important. It kind of helps frame who you are as a person, how you think, how the decisions you make. It affects and impacts your life, positive and negative. And for Umberto Lopez, like a guy who lost his father at age 11, you know, they lost everything. They came from Mexico to the United States. He, you know, they're on welfare. They're living with grandma. Um, handshake, looking someone in the eye, makes all the difference in the world. It means everything. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Coming up, top of the hour, 4 o'clock, we're going to talk to a former NBA player who will tell us that he was illiterate playing in the NBA. He went on after his career to graduate from college with honors. He's now written a book. He's talking all about his rise and um, his ability to function after basketball and the importance of pursuing an education. We'll talk to Dean Tolson, played at Arkansas later in the program, coming up in just a few minutes. Um, he really is interested in talking about children who are at risk, but I think he's just got a hell of a story. Like, how do you get along in the NBA and get, you know, come from Kansas City, Missouri, go to Arkansas, go to college, get to the NBA, and then look back and go, hey, I had a literacy issue when I was in college and in the NBA, despite the fact that he was drafted by the Seattle Supersonics, played three years in the NBA, then went overseas to play for 11 years, and ended up back at Arkansas pursuing a degree in history. Um, his story was featured in Sports Illustrated a few years ago, but he emailed me this morning, and I was like, I love this story. And I go, Dean, we're going to get you on the show. So he's coming up at 4 o'clock. I'm excited to talk to him about what he's doing and the journey he was on because I think it's one of those stories that goes beyond sports, certainly. Dean Tolson coming up just a few minutes from now. 5 at 5 with Anna, of course, in the 5 o'clock hour. What will be her lead story? We'll stick around and find out. Um, some news, but not the big splash. The Bucks have fired their coach after 43 games. Uh, LeBron and Steph Curry are in the player pool for the Olympics. I find it interesting that there seems to be a little more shine in competing for your country and playing in the Olympics. What do you think that's about, Stephen? Why, why are those top NBA players suddenly going, you know what, we'd like to win gold? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know the real reason behind that, John. It is an interesting thing because there was a stretch there where it didn't matter, and then I feel like this last Olympics, it did kind of matter, and guys were back in. I feel like it's just the flavor of the month. People are trying to boost up their resumes, I think, for their for their careers. You know, maybe LeBron wants one more gold medal to go along to try to be the GOAT and be better than Michael Jordan. I think that's kind of where 
my head goes when it comes to the NBA guys and comes to the Olympics is that they're trying to get things that they can add to their resume. They can, you know, they can say it's for the country. They can say it for everything like that. But I do think it's a sense of pride of, hey, I do have a gold medal on my resume now where other players don't have that. But also, wasn't it LeBron, Kobe, sort of saying, look, it's important to be American. It's important after the embarrassments that the country had that, you know, and and maybe some notoriety with a Netflix documentary about, you know, Team USA coming out. Like, they kind of made it cool again, didn't they? They did, yeah. The Redeem Team, because it was, you know, it was coming off the uh, the Olympics over in Greece, I believe, you know, with yeah. uh, 2004. Yeah, yeah it was LeBron bad. and Carmelo and Larry Brown and all that drama where they lose. They lost uh, to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, Carlos Arroyo. Yeah, that was uh, that was a shocker that Argentina ended up winning the gold medal. Yeah, after that, the Redeem team came back, and they, they made it cool again. Uh, and, and then Spain had a really good team, of course, with Pau Gasol and Marc Gasol, uh, Rudy Fernandez, former Blazer great. So, yeah, I, I think it goes through its ups and downs. I think it's um, last this last Olympics, it was a little maybe tougher than America wanted. So I think maybe it is going to be cool again to go back and say, you know what, we are the dominant one in the world at the game of basketball, even though, you know, all these other countries are pretty close to America now. Uh, and you look at the NBA, I mean, you look Giannis and Nikola Jokic and Joel yeah, Embiid, all that, these guys are, are, are the best players in the league and they're not American. There has to be some of that in it too, because I think you're seeing so many international players win it. You're seeing international players win MVPs and win NBA titles and threaten. And I, I thought it, it struck me in the, you know, cause I was there in 2004. I was in Athens. I was at the Puerto Rico USA game it was uh, jarring to see the United States team with all that talent, LeBron, uh, Allen Iverson, um, you know, Sean Marion, it, you know, Tim Duncan. That team lost to Puerto Rico. They were wearing and one sneakers, okay? It was like it was rock bottom for, for the United States. And, but it was nice to kind of watch that Redeem team documentary because, you know, I'd covered those games in, in 08 and certainly in 2012, in London, and so I had kind of looked at the Beijing Olympics and the London Olympics as, hey, we got it back on track, but to get the backstory on it and see, like, the pride that was involved in this is our game. You know, Dr. James Naismith puts that peach basket on the end of a pole, and it's our game. And to see team players from the United States sort of adopt that pride was really cool. Now, a couple surprises um, one, Draymond Green not on the list of 41 players that was released for the Paris pool today. Uh, Draymond, who you know won gold in Tokyo, was expected to be on this list. Steve Kerr involved, of course, coaching. Um, really a big surprise that Draymond Green's not there. I think it's good. I think he'd be a distraction. I don't think you need him. I think he's lost something. Secondarily, Joel Embiid is on the list. He's from Cameroon. But he became a citizen in 2022. He wants on the team. Like, it gives the United States a big man because the U.S. Team USA needs a big man. But it also is kind of like, are we going to look like we're, like, you know, in this era of transfer portal, NIL, club basketball? Are we just going out and getting the best big man that's available? And, and be just hit the portal <laughs> yeah. of the country? 
I just, I don't know how I feel about it. It's the most American thing ever. Well, that was like uh, Hakeem Olajuwon back in the day. I'm a big Hakeem fan. I remember because he was from Nigeria, and he ended up getting American citizenship and played on the 96 team. So I don't know. I don't have a problem with it. I think Embiid can do what he wants to do. And, you know, as an American, I, I'm all for it to say, hey, let's get Joel Embiid on this roster because you're right. They do need a big man. And there's some other, uh, you look at, you know, Serbia, Nikola Jokic, they need some guys to uh, yeah. go up against those players. Yeah, Chet Holmgren is one of the few young players on the list that he, he can't get along with just him. And then Anthony Davis, who has not played in the Olympics since 2016, is also in the pool. But, you know, he's lost something. So Embiid is a huge upgrade there. I just find it very interesting and a little suspicious that Embiid got his citizenship and is now in the player, Paris player pool. That, of course, brings us to our big splash. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. I was at Killer Burger earlier today. Had lunch there. Reigning MVP, Joel Embiid had a historic scoring night. Became only the ninth player in league history last night to score 70 or more points. Got 70. As the Sixers took down San Antonio, 133-123. Embiid had 70 points, 18 rebounds, 5 assists. Broke the Sixers franchise record for points in a game that was previously held by Wilt Chamberlain who had 68. Embiid was 24 of 41 from the field. He made 21 of his 23 free throws. Afterwards, he talked about it. Uh, he gave some credit to Kobe Bryant, his hero. Uh, even though I started playing late, you know, from the time I started playing, Kobe was my guy. Uh, he's the reason why I started playing uh, basketball. And it's funny because on the same night he had 81, and you know, um, you know that was my favorite player. So, you know, when I started, that was the guys that I was looking, you know, I was looking up to, and you know, they they were doing all this. Dean Tolson coming up, former NBA player. Next, I love good stories. I love people. I love talking with people who have good stories or know how to tell good stories. Our next guest is a fantastic story. We're talking about a guy who graduated from high school, went to college on a scholarship, was drafted into the NBA and ABA, played for the Seattle Supersonics, went on to play overseas, and then later went back to college. How does a guy who's got two degrees, including graduating from the University of Arkansas with honors, write a book later and say, hey, I had a literacy issue. I was illiterate. Well, Dean Tolson is going to tell us all about it. One of the best high school basketball players in Missouri in his time. Full ride to Arkansas. Had a career in the armed forces. He's got a lot of life experience. He's written a book about it. Book, Power Forward, Dean Tolson, his story, his journey from illiterate NBA player. Available on Amazon at Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books, Dean Tolson's book can be found. And he's joining us now. 
from his home. Dean, let's set the scene. Where's home for you right now? Yeah, I'm in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and I want to thank you and Ballface Truth Podcast for having me on your show today for your audience to hear my story in hopes that it will benefit them and their kids in America. I, I think you have a tremendous story, and obviously you've written it in a book. But, Dane, let's go back. Let's go back to Central High School in Kansas City. You were a young man. Great basketball player. What was going on in your life? Um, and tell us how you felt at that time and how fast life was happening for you. Well, it's real simple. <laughs> one word, the ghetto. <laughs> From one year old to 18 years old, I lived in Kansas City in the ghetto. And um, at nine years old, my mom threw us in an orphan home because she couldn't afford to take care of us, and we stayed there for five years. And then when I got out, three years later, I got a scholarship to the University of Arkansas. It must have felt like, um, you know, it must have been an amazing experience to go from an orphanage to a scholarship. And I have to think at that time there were a lot of people around you, too, that were in a similar predicament that probably didn't have a scholarship or the ability to earn one. Um, you know, did did you did you have doubts as a kid when you're in that orphanage as to how how things were going to unfold for Dean Tolson? Yeah, you know, when you grow up without a dad and then the single parent mom raising five kids by herself, that's the types of things that go on in the inner city. And you know, you go to school a lot of days hungry and you 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 fighting after school and after during class and skipping class and, and not doing any assignments whatsoever and learning and you know being a student i just was just something that didn't exist uh, school was a playground you later talk about literacy and being illiterate in, in while in the nba and i have to wonder like we always hear stories about great athletes who get passed along in school were you a case of a kid getting passed along or were you struggling and you didn't have the resources or what was happening there Absolutely. I fell to fifth grade twice. And so my mother came up to the school and they was going to fail me the third time. And she told him, no, no, no. He is the tallest kid in this class. I want you to pass him on anyway. And so that's when it started. So they passed me. And then nobody cared whether I got the education or not. They just knew that they were going to pass me year after year after year until I that happened all the way through high school. I became the star of my uh, high school basketball team, and then I became the top player in the entire state of Missouri, averaging 30 points a game and 20 rebounds a game my senior year. And living with a secret. <laughs> I couldn't read and write. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think about that now, Dean, and I think, like, you know, were you a kid that, did you need help? Did you need, you know, did you have uh did you have a need? Did you have a learning disability or was it just a case of at some point when you're not learning the basics, you just are too embarrassed to go back and raise your hand and say, "Hey, I don't I don't know the sounds. I don't know, I can't read." Well, I'm I guarantee you that over 50 or 60% of the kids right now in America are doing the same thing I did. 
which is consciously decide that they're not going to commit themselves or apply themselves to getting a quality education in their life. They're thinking there's some other pie in the sky that they're going to go for or some big deal. They're going to set the world on fire or this or that. And I'm just here to let them know it's not going to happen. Get your education. My pie in the sky was the NBA. And I got there. And when I got there, I was benched for four years and never got to play. Dean Tolson, our guest, former Seattle Supersonic, Arkansas Razorback. Were there times where you had to fake it that you could read or – were there were there contract put in front of you? How do you how do you navigate that? Well, no one no one actually knows you're illiterate. You can talk. Yeah. Um, Dexter Manley, the Washington Redskins, could talk, but he was illiterate. He got a Super Bowl, but guess what? He couldn't read or write. I was the same way. You go to play for Bill Russell in mm-hmm. Seattle. What was that experience like for you? Well, you know, uh, I idolized the man. I, I turned down the ABA to play with him. And what my disappointment did I experience with that? Four years of agony and defeat. Yeah. My lifelong dream for 21 years was to get there. And when I got there, I never played. I was the... Leading score at 22.3 rebound, 22.3 points a game, and 13.2 rebounds, which is still the record at the University of Arkansas to this day. It's been there 52 years, and no one's broke it to this day. And you get to the NBA, and they say, eh, not good enough. You're on the bench. Yeah. You ever get an opportunity, or was it just a case of, you, you, now looking back, you never felt like you got a fair shake? Every opportunity I got, I took advantage of it. I averaged a point a minute a game and shot 56.6 from the field in yeah. the NBA and broke and broke the NBA uh, uh, record for the Seattle Supersonics. The guy by the name of yeah. Dick Snyder used to hold it, and he was at 53.3, and I broke it at 56.6 in 1976-77. Yeah, I mean, at that time, too, you don't have expansion. You don't have extra teams no, in the league. It, don't make the team you you're on your way overseas that's why I played 12 years international what did it feel like when you got overseas and you finally got a chance to break well, a sweat I got to relax game? and play I got to relax and really play and you know I averaged 40 45 points a game everywhere I went <laughs> was it <laughs> and I was just waiting for the NBA to pick me back up and nobody ever picked me back up man just a different time too yeah, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. I was out playing the guys that were supposed to be better than me. That was the problem. Dean Tolson. But I was illiterate, so no one listened to what I had to say. So I ended up going back to college to prove to them that illiteracy wasn't the problem. I just needed an opportunity to play. When did you make that decision? Because you go back to Arkansas, you don't just get uh, a degree. You get a master's degree. You graduate. You graduate with honors. It kind of feels like you were out to prove something. It, it, not, I, I was out to prove something to myself. Yeah. 
<laughs> See, that's what I want the kids in America to understand, is you don't have to prove nothing to mommy or daddy or aunt or uncle or sister and brother. Prove it to yourself and better yourself in society and make your contribution, make your mark, make your grades. What did that feel like? Because when you go back to Arkansas, you hear players who say, I'm going back to get the degree for my mom, or I'm going back because that was a promise I made to my grandma. When you went back, you're saying it was you were doing it for you. Yeah, I was doing it. What I want kids to understand in America is when you get an education, it is beyond an education. You find out who you are in this life. Because the tears roll down your eyes uncontrollably after you do it. They can't see that right now, though, can they? That's why 7,000 of them a day drop out in America, one every 26 seconds, 1.2 million a year, every day. You're, you're a guy who has the key to the city now. In, you know, you, you're, you're a guy who's got the degrees. Yeah. And I find it interesting now that, you know, you've got the message, right? And I love your message. I'm the first professional player in American history to ever pull it off. Yes. Do you think Dean Tolson at, in Missouri going to high school would have listened to Dean Tolson today? No. Absolutely some- not. Took some time, didn't it? Well, my head was hard as a granite countertop. (laughs) Okay? And listen, nobody. And then when I turned 32 years old, I finally listened to my mother, and she told me to go back to school, and I did it. Because I had a contract to go back to Athens, Greece. And she hid my plane ticket and my passport and and my contract in the attic of the house from me when I came to visit her. And I said, Mother, where's my stuff? She says, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Excuse me? It's only you and I in the house. It just didn't walk off the dresser drawer somewhere. And so she walks around there with her mouth poked out for two or three days, and she goes, yes, I've seen it, and you're not getting it back. Whoa. What's that all about? She says, sit down here, I'll tell you. So I sat down at the table, and she told me. And tears just started rolling out her eyes and told me, you go back to that university, boy. And you work hard. And you will graduate. And for one time, I listened to her and did it. And now, that's why you're talking to me right now. Our guest, former NBA player Dean Tolson, two degrees from the University of Arkansas. He's talking about literacy and spreading a message. He's written a book about it. Um, Why did... Why did why was it important for you to write it down and and write a book about it? Because I find it interesting that a guy. I mean, the story is really about being illiterate, and here you are writing a book. I mean, it's it's the ultimate uh, comeback. Well, I've been talking to kids for almost forty years, 
and my story kept falling on deaf ears to the public, like I wasn't saying or doing anything, okay? And so I says, okay, I'm going to go back and get a master's, and, and I'm going to show them beyond an undergraduate degree how it can be done, and not only that it can be done, is that it can be done in style with honors and a magnum cum laude degree where I get inducted into the National Honor Society in Chicago, Illinois, of all the collegiate colleges in America with a 3.9 GPA. I am uh, very interested in resilience. I think as a trait... You love it, huh? I love it. I love resilience, and your story has resilience all over it. But you tell me. I mean, you're in an orphanage. You're at Arkansas. You're on the bench in Seattle. You're overseas. You've dealt with tremendous amount of of, of difficulty, and the odds were against you. Where did you get the resilience? Where did you get the motivation and the drive amid all of that? One word. Failure. What human being that's trying to achieve something really wants to fail? Anybody out there? <laughs> that's the answer. Fear I of failure? refuse to fail. <laughs> See, what people have to understand is failure and pain are married to one another. There, there's a marriage between those with those two, failure and pain. Because for you not to fail, you have to go through some pain. And I would cry every night for four years to figure that out. That was pain. I, I keep thinking about your career. And you end up overseas, and you have to have thinking, be thinking when you're overseas about life after basketball. Your mom certainly put it right in front of you and said, hey, go back to school. But you end up in being an entrepreneur. I mean, you get a carpet cleaning company. You, yeah, you have an I ran end. that for 20 years. Yeah, mm -hmm. like, is that something you, you thought, hey, I can do this? Or how do you find, how do you find that? Well, I, I, as a, um, a freshman... Uh, my second time around in Arkansas, which I was 32 years old, I took a job in Lenexa, Kansas, as a, a part-time carpet cleaner. I clean on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It makes some extra money because I was broke going back to school. I didn't spend all my basketball money. I didn't have no money. And so I was working for $6.50 an hour. So after learning the trade for three or four years, I said, you know what? When I graduate, I'm going to start my own carpet cleaning company because I saw the money in the business. And so when I graduated, I pulled the GMAC package, General Motors Acceptance Corporation, and it says, Let's, let us start your credit after graduation. We'll uh, loan you your first vehicle. So my first vehicle was a carpet cleaning van. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I bought it that. in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I drove it all the way back to Seattle and started my first carpet cleaning company. And I was the first black-owned carpet cleaning company in the city of Tacoma, Washington. I love it, Dean. Like, there's there's so <laughs> much about your story that's inspirational. 
Uh, Dean Tolson's book, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes & Noble. Uh, his journey from a literate NBA player to a degree, two degrees in a magna cum laude and, and uh, you know, a success story all the way around. It, it's I, on and on, isn't it, John? Yeah. And here's the other thing. Like, you're 6'9", 180. Mm-hmm. You, were a, you were a dunker, right? Like, you were in the oh, first dunk man. competition, weren't you? That's right. In the in the slam uh, first first NBA slam dunk contest nineteen seventy six seventy seven in Denver Colorado with uh, David Thompson. Did you have fun? My friend, yeah, I, mean, I know David. <laughs> I know most of them. No, but did you have fun in that competition? Oh, oh yes. I mean, I I, I messed up. Yeah, I'm, I'm out there showing off. And missed one of the five slams, but uh, you know uh, there was a lot of guys in there that couldn't out dunk me. But the rules were: if you miss one, you're out. Now, if you miss one, you you know it doesn't matter. But then, that was the rules then. So uh, yeah, I was a a, I mean I I was one of the top five slam dunk artists that played for the Seattle SuperSonics. You got Spencer Haywood, uh, Sean Kemp, uh, Daryl Stansberry. Uh, uh, Tom Chambers and uh, and Dean Tolson and another guy by the name of um, Kevin Durant. <laughs> hey, Dean, let me ask you because you were with the Sonics in that seventy six seventy seven season. It was your second mm-hmm. tour with the Sonics, but the Blazers win the world title. We got a lot of Blazer fans who remember that era. What are your What are your memories of Bill Walton, Maurice Lucas, and those Blazers? Uh, they beat us three out of four. They beat us uh, twice at their place and one at our place, and we beat them once at our place that year. What made them special? Uh, Bill Walton. Uh, Tom Burleson did not have the talent that Bill Walton had at seven foot four. Mm-hmm. And they would pass the ball inside to Bill Walton, and then the players cut off of him and go to the spots and. Bill would either put it in himself or he'd get it to one of them to shoot it in. And they they and and Maurice Lucas was was the first go to that he would go to uh after himself. And they 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 put it together and won it that year. I think we took we took third that year and we took second my rookie year in the South, in the West in the West Coast conference. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. that was good good basketball in the Pacific Northwest. Oh man, that Portland uh uh Seattle rival was huge. It's kind of sad that it's gone now, you know, with the Sonics moving, need to get that back. Well, you know, that's part of my platform. I'm I'm bring the Sonics back. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh they say 2025 is what they say. We'll see. There you go. But I certainly hope so they never should have been removed in the first place. You agree? I agree. And Dean, I, I part of me says I wish Dean Tolson would have got more minutes, but part of me also says, you know, <laughs> things sometimes unfold as they should. And yeah, you yeah. are a success story, my friend. Well, well John, God's in charge, okay? <laughs> and he Amen. wanted me to have this story, to give it to the kids. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to ask my audience to go to that website out there and check it out. It's DeanTolson.com. DeanTolson.com. Check out his book. Dean Tolson, I I appreciate Mm -hmm. you. Go to the website. Check out his book. He's trying to reach kids, trying to help 
kids uh, like yes. himself back many years Absolutely. ago. And, Dean, thank you for your time, man. I appreciate you joining us. Well, hey, thank you. I, you know, we can talk on this topic forever. You feel it, right, John? I do. It's important. Okay, then. All right, okay, man. Then. There's All Dean right. Tolson. Thank you, Dean. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Dean Tolson reached out to me. He wanted to come on the show. I got to give that guy credit. Perseverance. Resilience. He's gone from high school basketball sensation in Missouri to Arkansas, now to the NBA, and he couldn't read and write. And he's written a book now, and I encourage you to go to his website, Dean uh, Tolson, T-O-L-S-O-N, dot com. Dean Tolson, former NBA player. And I got to be honest, I'd never heard of him before he reached out to me. And I, I said, I got to look up this guy, find out who he is. He didn't have a great NBA career. But he talked about growing up in the ghetto in Kansas City, Missouri, becoming a star player. It's such a good story. Anna's popped into the studio. I'm glad you got to uh, hear just a bit of it. But, Stephen, you love the interview. I got a text from Nick Aliotti, former Oregon D coordinator. He said, I love that interview. My mailman texted me, said, I love that interview. Um Steven, you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, no, he was uh he was fascinating, you know, and, and and I like as a father, the one thing I still struggle with trying to teach my kids is perseverance. Like that's the one thing I try to teach them like everything's not going to go your way and for, you know, for Dean, it was like, you know, the worst of the worst things that weren't happening for him and he persevered and got to this spot where he is in life where he's now motivating kids and helping out the youth and doing good things in life. And for me, it's just like Hey, I'm trying to teach my son when he misses a shot in basketball not to get down about it. You know, like, and, and so, like, to hear those type of things that, you know, these people are going through these just such hard times in their life and they come out the other side and they're doing good for the world, man. It's just, it's just good. And then he's just, he was an entertaining guy, I will say. Like, you know, like a one of one type of person. I told he, you, I told you, you before told, the interview. You told me that. You texted <laughs> us, you're like, he's one of one. And he was, like, <laughs> yes. so entertaining, so interesting, man. I, I could have listened to you talk to him all day. Dean asked me before the show. What should I wear? <laughs> and I said, Dane, it's a radio show. And then when he came on, I love how he said, I want to thank you, John, and the Bald Face Truth podcast. And so he had apparently done a little homework on that. Uh, loved that interview. Uh, loved having him on. Um, literacy, uh, obviously for me, I my hope is that all the kids that are in school are learning to read and write. But too often, I think... You know, some kids are dealing with challenges, learning disabilities. Other times they're in schools that are impacted and teachers don't have the time to teach to the, you know, to the weakest part of the classroom. And and kids do get passed along. And, you know, I, I think, Anna, you, you go into our kids' school and you read with kids and you see a varying level of competency when it comes to reading or writing with first, second, third, fourth graders. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, I think... As parents, we have to be really tuned in to our kids and what is their actual ability to read and write because, especially with the pandemic, um, I think a lot of kids fell behind. They weren't getting, you know, that kind of normal classroom instruction um, that they would have gotten. And I think the technology hides it. So, like, for example, you'll get an assignment that your kid brings home that he or she supposedly wrote, and that if they're using technology at school to write, 
I've seen a lot of kids just use Google Dictate. So they're just voice dictating an essay, which creatively, great, get the ideas down, but how I don't I don't know how much they're actually processing the reading and writing portion of that and so I, I it concerns me and it concerns me when I hear that to get a kid tested for dyslexia or some other kind of reading issue it can cost a district as much as like a thousand to two thousand dollars to bring a specialist in to do that test which is why kids can slip through the cracks and also there's some parents I think that don't want to hear that their kids struggling yeah, sure. And so there's a little too. bit of denial that goes on there. Yeah. And, you know, for Dean, in his case, you know, he has a single mother. He says he grows up in the ghetto. His mother can't take care of the kids. She drops him at an orphanage. And, you know, he happens to be a six foot eight inch high school kid who can dunk. And Arkansas gives him a full ride. And pretty soon, like, you know, he's in the NBA and he's looking around going, I still can't read and write. I mean, that's an incredible disservice. Everyone in along his journey who just kept passing him along because of his athleticism, uh, you, they weren't really doing him any favors, no, were they? I don't, the I don't know. Not in the end. And, it, you know, and I know I get it. Some, you know, it's hard. And sometimes, you know, he even said, had you gone back and talked to himself all those years ago, he didn't think he would listen to himself. Mm -hmm. So some of that going on. Yeah. Uh, Paul Knowles, the mayor. Of North Portland, calling into the uh, show, the Mister Rip City himself. How you doing, Paul? Hey, you had a birthday, ninety three, baby. Ninety three, John. And the reason I called because I think it's been a couple years since uh, you had a ninety three year old. That was my friend Bill Shanley was on, and uh, now I was ninety two, John, and I I I I I, I, I have passed that threshold. I say 92 and got stuff to do. Now I'm 93 and I got places to be. So <laughs> that's the way. It's <laughs> I love it. You know, getting back to your story, you know, I'm from Arkansas and Ron Brewer went to the University of Arkansas where the young man attended school that you were talking to. Yeah, yeah I went to, I went to high school with Ron Brewer's mother. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Give me an idea, Paul. Uh, what does 93 feel like? 93 feels like 93. <laughs> something, <laughs> some, something every morning is not going to be working quite right, you know. And <laughs> But you got to roll out anyway, you know. And uh, I have a routine that I walk from 7 to 8 a.m. every morning. I'll be listening to the news. And I go down the hallway, through the kitchen, back through the dining room, and I walk from 7 to 8 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. I do my little lift waiting, lifting weights and stuff like that. Good. And uh, I think that's what's keeping me going because I see I go out to every event that there is, and people say, Mr. Knowles, you'll be everywhere because I posted on my Facebook page. You'll be everywhere. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm going to go till I can't go no more. M-O. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I love it. Now, for people who don't know, Paul Knowles in Geneva, his lovely wife, you got to Portland 1963, if I, my memory uh, holds correctly. And Paul is known as the honorary mayor. Uh, of Northeast Portland, and and you might see him at a Blazer game. You might see him walking around, uh, certainly at community events. But you guys ran uh, the Cotton Club, a jazz bar. 
you guys had um, several businesses, um, and it, it was about nightlife, and and it was as li- alive as this city has ever been. Yes, yes, it was, because like the Cotton Club, you could walk in and you might see a celebrity there. If they had a big show downtown, they would drop into the Cotton Club because they wanted to be where the, 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 the music was, you know. Sammy Davis Jr. came over after his show, and here the big brown bummer walked in. And, and John, one day, uh, Harry Glickman used to bring the San Francisco and Los Angeles Rams to town for an exhibition mm-hmm. game. And all at once, the, the room got dark, and who was walking in the door? Roosevelt Guerrero and Charlie Cowan. They were so big, it just darkened the room as they came <laughs> through the door. <laughs> I said, Mr. Greer, Mr. <laughs> oh, my God, he was so huge, and he was so huge, you know. But that's the way it was. Mama Cass, Mama Cass from the Mamas and Papas, she came over to our place one night, you know. The Righteous Brothers, you know, our people came because that's where the music was, and it was happening. It really was. Yeah, and I, and I know that people uh, always saw Geneva by your side, and, and uh, you guys were like the— the, the power couple in Portland, the original power couple. Yeah, well, some people said that. Uh, they always uh, wondered, how do you how do you guys afford those those uh, tickets down there on the front row, you know? And I said, my wife didn't know what they cost, so we wouldn't have been down there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. But John, uh, what's coming yeah. up here on the tw- on the twenty sixth? You know, they're naming a building after my wife and I. I heard that. The, it's the a Paul and building. Geneva, the Knolls building. It's in Knowles Alberta, building. Alberta, right? Yeah, on uh, 8th and Alberta. They're going to house only veterans and veterans only. And uh, we're just so happy about that to get her name up there along with mine because she was she was a real trooper, you know, big in the community. But I overshadowed because, you know, I'm the one that talk and talk and talk, and she would just do her work and not say anything, you know. So yeah. we're we're happy that that's going to happen. I love that. And uh, that building, the Paul and Geneva Knolls building on Alberta, uh, I'm looking at renderings of it now, 780 Northeast Alberta Street. you got a building, Paul. You know, that, right. that's, a, and, that's and, a big deal. And, John, that don't usually happen until you're dead. You know? <laughs> <laughs> They don't name stuff after people <laughs> like like all the airports. Every one of them are named after somebody that died. You know, <laughs> you better pinch yourself on your way to the dedication. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that. Right. But it's been a good ride. Portland's been good, and people are interested in the Cotton Club now. So they're having a lot of events, and I have to go in and talk about. The Cotton Club, that's all they want to hear about because the city is not like it was when when the Cotton Club was around. Do you think it could work today? Could could we reopen the club? Uh, they, they, you, you have to pay the musicians too much money. They want too much money to be able to uh, 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 have something like that now. Because you know you got the band and you got the entertainer, and if if the crowd comes, they look at the crowd and think you're making all the money, and then they want more money, and that's what happened. Yeah, 
that's what happened with a group. I put a group in there, called themselves the Three Little Souls. They came in. They were just like the Jackson Fives. Only was three of them. I put them to work for a month. Then they wanted more money, and I couldn't afford it, so I got them at the three stars. Somebody filmed them and got Sammy Davis Jr. Got them, and they went everywhere. And I'm watching my watching uh, Sesame Street one day. John, they're all they all with Big Bird now. You know you're big when you <laughs> when you get on with Big Bird. You made it. Well, you Paul, made it. Paul, you're 93, and I want to wish you a happy birthday. And you know, I know that you know you were close with Bill Shonley, and I noticed just the other day it was the uh, anniversary of his passing. And uh, I wanted to give you this. I could sing Happy Birthday to you, but I'll do one better. Rip City, baby. <laughs> There you All go. Right. All there right. You go. Yeah, 90, 93, and I got places to be. 93 and places to be. Hey, you call in any time, Paul. Thank you. I, I appreciate it, John. All right. All right. Take Thank care. There he is, the, more, the mayor of Northeast Portland. He's amazing. I know. His recall, like, I want that's goals, man. 93, yeah. he's sharp as a tack. And he remembers conversations. Last yeah. time he think he called in, he told us about, you know, Everybody was hitting on Geneva and you know, and all the stuff that was going on. Do you think it's just he's told these stories so many times that he's got them locked into memory? Well, or? I think he's a good storyteller, Yeah. first of all. I mean, yeah. He reminds me of my grandfather on my mm-hmm. Italian side and that you know he knows how to set a story up. He yeah. knows how to tell a joke. He knows when to deliver. He has impeccable timing. Yes. And some of that comes from the fact that he was in the Cotton Club working the door and he was, you know, he was... He was the ambassador, yeah. you know, the, he's the MC, And so he's got that. And I think he's told the stories so often that he's got them in his mind. Like, yeah. you know, he, I think if we talked to him long enough, we would start to hear the repeats. Yeah. But I think he also he's just one of these people who's 93 and he's sharper than people I, that are 39. I feel like we need uh, an interrogation of uh, the mayor of Northeast Portland to figure out what is he eating? Yeah. What time does he go to bed? He mentioned that he works out. He lifts yeah. weights. He's active. He's active. Obviously, still very and he's social. social. Yes, and, and that is a marker, I think, of people who are not just living a long time, but they're keeping their marbles too. Because he's talking to people, he's interacting with people, and you know, he's very—he's just a social animal. You yeah. can tell, just you know, in visiting. I met him probably twenty years ago. Uh-huh. He came up to me at a Blazers game. Yeah. And he's wearing kind of this, he wear, he wears, you know, he dresses nice, yeah. nice dresser. He looks like he's going to go Stylish the, guy. Love, the love boat at any moment. But he actually looks, because the hat he wears, he looks like he's like the captain yeah. of the ship. Right. And so he's unmistakable. Uh-huh. And I have several in my phone, you go through my, kind of my photos, there's several photos of Paul Knowles and myself at games where I'm like, hey, let me get a selfie with you. <laughs> let me get a selfie with you. And then, and then he just started calling in, over, you know, over the years. Yeah. but. Everybody knows him, uh-huh. you know, and I've written about him at johnconzano.com. If you want to read about it, just Google johnconzano.com and Paul Knowles. It'll pop right up. You'll have a uh, wonderful, I think I wrote about him last time he had a birthday. Mm-hmm. So he's calling back in to say he turned 93. Well, happy birthday, Paul Knowles. Yeah. Leave it here. Got a great show for you, obviously. We booked the guests. We had good guests today, but... Sometimes the show just goes in directions that, um, you know, you never anticipate. Um, Baseball Hall of Fame vote is out. The results are in, I guess I should say. The vote is out. The results are in. Uh, Adrian Beltre 
gets into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Todd Helton in the Hall of Fame. And uh, Joe Maurer gets in. Uh, twins catcher who, by the way, struck out only once in his entire high school career as a player. He gets into the Hall of Fame as well. Those three get in, missing the cut. Gary Sheffield got 68%. You need 75% to get in. Sheffield uh, will have to rely upon the Veterans Committee for his induction. Um, Billy Wagner fell just five votes short of election, 73.8%. It's his ninth and next to last year on the ballot. Wagner's going to get in next year. Andrew Jones, 61%. Carlos Beltran, 57%. I have a vote. I voted for Wagner. I voted for Maurer. I voted for Helton. I voted for Beltran. I thought those were easier calls than some others. I voted for Gary Sheffield. But uh, there is the the results. Three will get in, in addition to uh, Jim uh, Leyland, the manager, who's getting in with the uh, Veterans Committee. But uh, Adrian Beltre got 95% of the votes. First year on the ballot, he'll be in a, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Todd Helton got 79.7%. Sixth year on the ballot, and Joe Maurer, in his very first year on the ballot, got 76% squeezed in. Those three are going in. I expect Wagner will get in next year. Andrew Jones might get in next year. You always see an uptick in their second year on the ballot, but uh, that's kind of where they stand as the Baseball Hall of Fame. By the way, the average ballot contains seven names. You can put up to ten on your ballot. I did mark ten. In a lot of years... I uh, I don't mark 10, but this was the 10th time that the Baseball Writers Association of America elected three players, the first time since 2017 when Jeff Bagwell, Tim Raines, and Yvonne Rodriguez made the grade. Any surprises there for you, Stephen? Beltre, Helton, Maurer get in. Wagner does not. He'll probably get in next year. Sheffield does not in his last year on the ballot. Andrew Jones falls short, seventh year on the ballot. Any surprises? Um. Hell, I was just talking to June about this. I mean, was Todd Helton was he really a Hall of Fame player? I know, I know, he was the best player in Colorado Rockies history, but he also had a lot of numbers enhanced because of Colorado, and I, I do hold that against him slightly. But uh, I'm not surprised he got in. I just, you know, it, it makes sense that it's on his sixth year of the ballot. Uh, Joe Maurer, first year on the ballot, I thought that was pretty interesting. I think that's the right call, but. Um, I know a lot of people wouldn't think that way. It is interesting also to look at guys like Alex Rodriguez, you know, still out there, third year on ballot, 34%. I mean, I understand the steroid thing, but, like, that guy is a Hall of Famer. You got to get him in there. And if you're going to put in guys like Todd Helton or, you know, Andrew Jones or Carlos Beltran, all these guys, Alex Rodriguez is much better than him. I understand it. I understand the steroid thing, but Sheffield, too. I mean, Sheffield Sheffield, as well. Yeah. David Ortiz was a steroid guy. Like, there's a lot of steroid guys, but we just hold it against Alex Rodriguez because he was, you know, the face of it. Yeah. I think Helton was tough for me. And I, you know, over the years, I have not had him on every single ballot. I've, he's, for me, he's been a bubble guy all along. And you look at his, you know, his road stats versus his home stats, certainly a difference. You know, he had, you know, it, you know, he hit only 287 away from Coors Field, but he played his whole career, 17 years, in a place that was a hitter's paradise. And you're right that, you know, you kind of look at it. But he, for a long time, I kind of wondered, you know, he hit 345 at home. And he hit 285 on the road. I mean, notable difference there. I think one of the things that hurt him along 
the way, too, was the fact that you had Larry Walker on that team and in that franchise. But for me, Helton also won three gold gloves. He was an all-star five times, and he might have had the best all-around season of any player in the National League in 2000 and probably should have won the MVP, but Jeff Kent ended up winning it. And, it, you know, he's one of those guys that I, I've kind of looked at him. He, he hit three fifty three in 2000. If he wins the MVP that year, maybe it's a different conversation, but I've always kind of felt like he was in the hall of very, very good. But I think as I looked at him more, when you start comparing him to other players, I the thing that made me check his name on my ballot was I looked at other Hall of Famers. I looked at at Dave Winfield, Eddie Murray, Ricky Henderson, Tony Gwynn, Al Kaline, and George Brett, and I looked at their their road stats, you know, and and he was a very comparable road player to those guys. And so I went, okay, two eighty seven with one hundred forty two home runs, not not bad. You know, and is in that conversation with Dave Winfield, Eddie Murray, Ricky Henderson, to Tony Gwynn. And he had a dominant, I mean, six year stretch where from 99 to 2004, he bats 344. I mean, averaging yeah. 37 home. I mean, there are some elite numbers he did put up. So, again, I don't think it's a yeah. you know bad thing that you, that we put him in. No, but, but it's a question. It is a it's question, a question mark. Yeah. I think, look, I like to look forward ahead. You know, next year, Ichiro is going to be on the ballot. CC Sabathia, I think those are the only two guys that make it in on the first year, but uh, yeah, you're right with these other guys that make it in next season with uh, um, Wagner gets in Wagner and Andy Jones questionable. Yeah. He needs six votes. And and here's the other thing that happens. Like nobody thinks of you as a hall of fame voter for most of the year, but the lobbyist groups that are out there that are basically fan groups that love players, they find you and they find me like in December every year. And they'll start sending me propaganda about Kurt Schilling and Todd Helton and Billy Wagner. And everybody's lobbying for their guy to get into the Hall of Fame. The guy that I thought really deserved it on this ballot that didn't make it was Gary Sheffield. And, you know, people may argue, oh, did Sheffield use PEDs? Did he not use PEDs? Like, are we? I, I can't sit here and be like, well, I'm going to eyeball these guys and try to figure that out. That wasn't my job. All I know is... That guy hit bombs, and the exit velocity on the baseball off of his bat was unmatched for a stretch of baseball. Like he was a dangerous hitter. I mean, that stance is just memorable and legendary. But wasn't he scary? Wasn't he also a problem for media members? Like, didn't media members not necessarily get along yes. with Gary Sheffield? Yeah, he was not Mister Congeniality, and he's tried to do a better job of that. And people may remember he came on this show a couple years ago. He knew damn well I had a Hall of Fame vote. You know. And Gary Sheffield was trying to go around after his career was over and try to like make good about it. But he was a guy who had 40% of the vote just a couple years ago. He got up to 63.9% in his final year. Did not get there. He fell short. He'll go to the Veterans Committee. I think he'll probably get in with the Veterans Committee. But he's a guy, when I look at his numbers, I look at his batting average, batting champion, nine-time All-Star, Gary Sheffield belonged in the Hall of Fame. What keeps him out was those two things we talked about. Both the cloud of PEDs, did he or didn't he? And the fact that he was not necessarily like Mr. Accessibility as a player. And I think it's hurt a number of guys. Kurt Schilling, you know, another guy that, you know, people don't like him and they don't want to vote for him. All right, the five at five's coming up. What's Anna's number one story? Stick around.
Anna's here for the 5 at 5. She's got five great stories. We also have Punch It Audio still ahead. Best sound from all around. We're going to do it all as part of this segment. Uh, I had a couple people reach out via social media to say they were having a bad day till they tuned into this show. And particularly at 4 o'clock, where we did a very unusual interview with Dean Tolson, former NBA player. Very different interview. It wasn't like, it was a risk, I thought. I told both Judah and Steven before the show, I said, eh, this one could be a little different. And Dean Tolson, man, he had a home run. Great interview, great perspective, fantastic, one of my favorite interviews. And then it was followed by a terrific phone call from Paul Knowles, who might have the best laugh in the state of Oregon. I had somebody say, I was having a bad day until I tuned into your show. Very frustrating work day. That phone call from Paul Knowles in the prior interview pulled me out of it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Nick, for sharing that. Anna's got the five at five. Anna, a lot of pressure on you. <laughs> yeah, let's keep point. it going. <laughs> let's keep it going you for know? Nick and anyone else who's having a bad day. You know, you're like the headliner now. <laughs> right here at five That was the opening act. Now now the real, real star's yeah, on stage. There we go. <laughs> Nothing like the opening acts being better than the headliner. It happens. All right, let's do it. Uh, let's do it. The five at five. The five at five. Number one. Let's kick things off with some news about Tyler Bass. You know Tyler Bass, 26 years old, one of the best kickers in the league. But, uh, you know, his 44-yard attempt over the weekend went wide right for the Bills. Uh, I'm going to play it in Westwood 1. Tyler Bass will try a 44-yard field goal to tie. The wind at his back. The snap is good. The ball put down. The kick is up. And no good. Wide right. Wide right. The Bills kicker missed a field goal. Wide right. Also the call by Jim Nance. And now you got to bring out Bass. Sean McDermott, after his one-for-three performance last week, he has tremendous support in the building. If he has to make one for us, the game on the line, he will. 44 yards, Bass. No, he doesn't make it. Wide right. Wow. The two most dreaded words in Buffalo have surfaced again. And in Korean. Korean. <laughs> It's in Korean, play by play. But what happened? What's what's the latest on Bass? Korean play by play. Okay. Yeah. So the Bills Mafia, uh, (laughs) they're showing some love for Bass because. I guess he got the rats over the mishap, oh, which sure. was so serious that it resulted in him deactivating his social media accounts, the poor kid. Yeah. But the rest of the Bills, the diehards, started making number 22, $22 contributions. Um, I guess he's number two. To the 10 Lives Club, which is a cat rescue charity that he has worked with over the years. 
That cat rescue charity has now received uh, more than $50,000 in his name. Uh, turning something good from something bad. He missed the kick. It's really unfortunate because I feel for the kicker. He sits around all game, and then you bring him in, and it's like, hero or goat? Let's find out. And he misses the kick, and, and in fact, there's no bigger sin for a kicker in Buffalo than going wide right like Scott Norwood did in the Super Bowl. I'm glad that the Bills Nation, Bills Mafia, whatever they want to be called, is uh, is uh, stepping up to the plate. That's good to hear. Enough with the death threats. It's sports. Number two. I think this is kind of big news. WWE Raw, which is the organization's flagship show, uh, announced today that it will stream exclusively on Netflix starting in January of next year. So Monday Night Raw will end their partnership uh, between Raw and NBC Universal. Yeah. This I, I couldn't help but think of the Pac-12. I did too. I immediately thought, like, do the presidents and chancellors in the Pac-12, are they watching the NFL and Paramount? Are they watching WWE Raw? on Netflix, streaming and streaming, and are they just going, oh, we could have been first, and now they're letting everybody else go do that streaming thing without them. This is a 10-year deal valued at more than $5 billion. Yeah. Yeah. They blew it. They should have. I mean, you got to bet on yourself at some point. And I get it. I get why Oregon and Washington went. We don't have to bet on ourselves. But it would have been fun to see what the Pac-12 could have done as a streaming entity on Apple. It might have been a big home run. It might have led to the NFL on Apple. It might have led to so much more. But no vision. And by the way, The Rock is joining the TKO board of directors. So, okay, you know, that's big news. That's That was sort of the secondary news. Maui on the uh, board of directors. <laughs> You're welcome. Number three. Uh, Deion Sanders is defending... His son's missing a Colorado team meeting to walk in the Louis Vuitton Paris Fashion Week show. Yeah, they needed a walk. Uh, it's Fashion Week. It's off season. Um, and he's saying, you know, he supports any young man on the team that has a dream, a goal, or an aspiration, allows them to go fulfill it. Not just his sons. He said he wanted them to go have a good time for Fashion Week. Uh, in an example, he said he told a member of his staff to leave work and go celebrate his daughter's birthday. He said, what are you doing here? Get on a plane and go. I think um, Coach Prime, I'm glad that he's emerged from his hibernation, postseason hibernation, to begin speaking again. I find it interesting that he's been re relatively quiet. Um, you had me watch this fashion show. Stephen, have you seen this Louis Vuitton Louis Vuitton fashion show of Shador Sanders and Shiloh Sanders walking around like they're fashion models. I cannot say that I have, but now I'm very interested. Oh, you really missed Should, it. Shador, I made John watch it. Shador is wearing what looks to be a construction vest, and Shiloh's got a puffy coat on. Looks like he's overdressed for winter. And, and the thing I noticed about the fashion models, none of them smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all kind of have this... You know, angry face that they uh, trot around with. 
the funny thing is Coach Prime also was saying, like, he kind of made fun of the outfits that yeah. his kids wore during the runway walk. No, I don't really understand fashion in general. Look at me. You know? <laughs> Look at You know? Me. I don't get it. <laughs> Number four. I thought they did a great job walking. Okay. Um, let's talk about Tristan Thompson with the Cavs. Okay. He has been suspended for 25 games for violating the NBA's anti-drug program. He tested positive for the human growth hormone ibutamorin and ligandrol. I'm likely mispronouncing those. Uh, Those are used to increase energy, improve athletic performance, and increase muscle growth. I kind of wondered how long it would be until the NBA started to see a rash of performance-enhancing issues. Drug testing, obviously, is a moving target. The technology is always trying to catch the cheaters. But, you know, you, you, you we saw it infect football, the Olympics. Major League Baseball had its turn. Cycling had its turn. The NBA had largely gone just with some isolated I- incidents. But I kind of wonder if the NBA is going to have its time. Like, there's going to be a, you know, anti-drug issue in the nba that kind of rears its head with you know because there's money at stake and careers at stake and when you involve money you're involving people and greed 25 games without pay did well it doesn't say without no he's going without pay i'm looking at i'm I'm reading the story nba says he will not be paid okay Uh, steven is that a surprise one year deal is a surprise tristan thompson is he desperate what's going on uh, yeah, I mean, no, it's not a surprise to me. He is pretty desperate. It was a guy that was basically out of the league, and then LeBron brought him on with the Lakers uh, maybe a year or two ago, just kind of as a veteran presence. And then he actually had to play in the playoffs a little bit, had a nice little run so that he got brought back to the Cavs. So, no, it's, it's one of those things where it is surprising this doesn't happen more in the NBA because uh, these older guys, like Tristan Thompson, not, I mean, he's considered old. He's like 31 years old, but that's you know incredibly old in NBA terms. So it is a little surprising that, this doesn't happen more often in the NBA. That guys get caught with this stuff. As I'm googling, like to find out, you know, what he did. You know, he was with Khloe Kardashian. Uh huh. Yeah, they have two kids together. And then he cheated on her with his personal trainer. Something like that. Yeah. And then he denied that he was the father. <laughs> yeah. And then he had to admit he was the father after a paternity test can you know yeah. revealed that. Are you going to figure out how to blame the Kardashians? Well, I'm just saying this is a like nobody gets in that vortex. And comes out of it cleanly. Has Men anybody, do not do well. Has anybody come out cleanly? I mean, Reggie no. Bush is the only one I can think of. Chris Humphreys went in there, came out different. Lamar Odom. Lamar Odom didn't do well. You know? Kanye. How about Jenner? Uh-uh. Didn't work for him either. I'd argue he's living a happier life. Uh, he know. came out different. <laughs> not he's, arguing that. It's different. Finally, number five. Number five. Um, I only bring this up because I just think it's really cute. Shaquille O'Neal and Zach Randolph's daughters are following in their dad's footsteps. Uh, the Both girls were just named McDonald's All-Americans, just like their dads. Uh, it's Maria O'Neal and McKinley Randolph. They have been selected to play in the prestigious McDonald's event. April 2nd at the Toyota Center in Houston. Did McKinley pick a school yet? Because I know she was rumored to be headed to Notre Dame, some other places. I'm trying to figure out if she's committed yet or she's figured that out. But um, obviously, it's really interesting because 
I can remember when I went to go do a uh, story on Zebo in Memphis. She was just a little kid. <laughs> it was year, I mean, this is years ago. She was a little kid, but man, you could see ge- the genetics. Like she was going to be a power forward mm-hmm. and be a player. It looks like it's down to Michigan State, Notre Dame, and Louisville for her and her choice. Shaq's daughter recently committed to play for the Gators. Well, there you have it. Um, looks like she is. McKinley is. Uh, well, by the way, McKinley is Zebo's middle name. Oh, did you know that? That's cute. He gave, and then his other daughter is Messiah. Okay. And I think she's younger, but uh, also probably uh, she lists her uh, Instagram profile description as athlete. <laughs> I have no doubt. Yes. All right. Thank you, uh, Anna, for the five at five. That's good stuff. What was your favorite? Did you have a sixth story? Did you have anything that was I close? I always have. Do you have a goodie bag I for us? I always have stuff that I leave on the cutting room yeah. floor. Yeah. Give us an idea. Take us into the mind of Anna as she's doing the five at five. You, you always try to have like a nice kind of balanced offering of stories. Yeah. I consider it like a full meal. You know, yeah. you got to have your meat and potatoes and your veggies and a little bit of dessert. And, and that's why you talked to me, I think, right before the segment, the break, commercial break. You asked me about the baseball writers thing and because you I, I think you didn't want that to be one of your five no no I was asking you because I was considering it to well it, it should have been in the five if we weren't going to talk about I the see baseball so I talked about it right before the five mm-hmm. and five okay yeah. and what else did you have uh, in your repertoire I had that LeBron and Stephen Curry um, were going to headline the USA basketball pool for yeah. the 2024 Olympics what do what do you make of that because you and I watched that documentary on the redeem team Mm-hmm. And it feels like being in the Olympics is cool again. And I kind of think that documentary and all the Kobe and there was a lot of pro-America propaganda in that documentary, kind of like pride, of, pride in our country, let's do this, we're the best in the world. Like, it's cool again because there was a phase there where it wasn't cool mm-hmm. to be on the Olympic team. And yeah. now it's cool again. Yeah, it's What bad. made it cool? Uh, I, I actually think the documentary helped. It kind of stoked the interest in the Olympics. Um, and I don't know, don't you think, there's part of me that thinks that LeBron and Steph Curry, with the year that they've had with their respective teams, yeah. that oh. they would want to come back and do something significant uh, over the it's summer. Not, it's not going anywhere. It it's... Uh, neither of them, neither of the teams are doing great this year, right? This season so far. Yeah, Stephen, do you think there's truth in that? Like that they're looking and they're going, this season is not going how we wanted it. The Lakers are 500, the Warriors are under 500, and those two guys are going, you know, let's go have some fun in the Olympic tournament in Paris. At least we have the Olympics. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point by Anna because it kind of goes with what I said, how it's more of a legacy play. And Mm -hmm. so if they're not going to make any noise in the playoffs, like, hey, if I get a gold medal, I can add this to my resume. I can add it to my legacy ultimately. And you know what? It's That's what people remember. I think also – we also talked about how the NBA just tries to stay relevant and like with all the drama and just be relevant. If you go away for a while, we uh, will forget about you in the NBA circle. So, you know, as long as LeBron and Steph Curry are on the team, we'll, we'll be watching them and uh, talking about them. He's got two gold medals. LeBron does. He in two thousand eight, two thousand twelve, he declined to participate in twenty sixteen. Sat out twenty twenty, resting his ankle. Um, so he wants to come back get that third gold medal. Kevin Durant's got three. Um, Steph Curry 
Um, you know, I think if those guys are going to do it, too, because here's the other thing. If you are NBC or whoever has the broadcast rights to those games, or frankly, if you're Paris and you want the best Olympics that you can possibly have, having some LeBron and Steph Curry to sell as part of the Olympic package is not a bad thing. Oh, absolutely. And they're both at an age where legacy is big for them because if not Paris 2024, do you really think they're going to be on the 2028 team wherever that Olympics is set? And, you know, superficially, I think they both don't mind the idea of being in Paris. Oh, it's a cool place to be. It's a cool thing to do. You know, maybe uh, that's all part of it. You know, nobody... Did, did fewer people want to go to – I thought Athens – you know, here's the thing. They sucked in Athens. <laughs> it was 2004. Yeah. I was there. It was messy. Was that embarrassing? It was embarrassing. And the Olympic – you know, this came out in the documentary, but I remember at the time the the Team USA players did not want to stay in the Olympic Village. Why? They, they The accommodations weren't great. Uh-huh. They, it wasn't what they were used to. Yeah. It was dorm-like. Uh-huh. And so they had a yacht – that parked at the harbor there in Athens, and the players all stayed on it. I think it was the Queen Mary. Okay. And they all stayed on the yacht. It was this huge, uh, you know, yeah. like LeBron what? was complaining about the Wi-Fi on the yacht that at one of the news conferences. <laughs> Carmelo Anthony, I saw him walking, like, on the streets of Athens, and he's just walking, wandering. And I was like... <laughs> He couldn't do that in the U- in the United States. Like yeah. he would just get mobbed. But he was walking, and no, but the Greeks are just walking by him like he's nobody. And and at the time, you know, Larry Brown was the coach, and he didn't want to play LeBron. He didn't want to start LeBron. He had Allen mm-hmm. Iverson. He had other guys. LeBron was still a young guy. And Tim Duncan, I'll never forget this. When they lost to Puerto Rico in the early part, you know, they had this frustrating loss. Tim Duncan is in the prime of his career with the Spurs. They're winning championships. I go out of the arena after their loss, and I'm trying to catch the players as they're leaving the arena getting on the team bus. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't hard because there was only like 15 or 12 media members Mm -hmm. that were trying to interview them and whatnot. I went to the walkway between the arena and the bus to catch players. And you could because you could get them outside the news conference. Mm -hmm. They're just leaving the building. And Duncan is laying on the pavement. He's got his duffel bag like as a pillow, okay. and he's just laying on the pavement, like looking up at the stars. And I thought, this isn't going well. Like he was, I think he was counting the minutes. How many more minutes do I have to be on this team that is so selfish? Because he had the antithesis of that mm-hmm. with Greg Popovich and you know David Robinson and Ginobili, and the Spurs were just humming. Mm-hmm. And Duncan was like, this is not what I signed up for. These guys do not know how to play team basketball. <laughs> And he was frustrated beyond belief. But um, really, really good to see that there's some pride in America. Now, we'll probably find out that these guys are getting bonuses yeah, I and mean, yeah, endorsements sure. Whatever, that come with know. this. And this, this is all about business. But for now, I'm going to pretend that there's some nostalgia <laughs> and they're American like the rest of us. Leave it here. It's been kind of a weird show today. And I don't mean weird bad. Weird can be good. It's been a different show. Like, we started the show, you know, I, I wasn't too worried about it, but we had a little technical difficulty off the top of the show. It was fine. We recovered. And then our guest uh, in hour one, Michael Lev from the Arizona Daily Star, he was having some phone issues and kind of had to bail out of the interview and uh, just kind of went on it on her own. And then 
right. You know, the show often surprises me. And right at four o'clock, we got a great surprise and I think uh, a much needed uh, pivot as Dean Tolson, the former NBA player, joined us and talked about growing up in the ghetto in Kansas City and being left at an orphanage with his four other siblings by his mother who was raising five children on her own. She just couldn't do it. And he uh, is illiterate and gets passed through elementary school and goes to Arkansas on a scholarship and then to the NBA where he plays for the Seattle Sonics and life doesn't work out in the NBA. And he ends up overseas and has a nice decade overseas, but decides when he comes home that he's got to get back to school. His mother, of course, directing him that that way. And he learns to read. He learns to write. He gets his degree. He gets a master's. He graduates with honors. He um, ends up with a carpet cleaning company in Seattle. And it becomes a successful entrepreneur. And, you know, he's written a book about it. And Dean was a different interview. It was It was challenging for me in part because of the way that he paused between his thoughts. But I just kind of let him go, and he carried it. I mean, he did 15 or 20 minutes that, if you haven't heard it, grab the podcast, make sure you get it. And that was followed closely by a phone call from Northeast Portland, from the mayor of Northeast Portland, Paul Knowles, who's turned 93. And uh, now the show's just been humming, but... I always say these shows are like snowflakes. They're never the same. I love that part of this job. And, of course, we have a, we're, we've arrived at, you know, the, the home stretch and uh, one of my favorite benchmarks of the show, Punch It Audio. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, the Milwaukee Bucks, never mind that they are second in the Eastern Conference, they have fired their coach, Adrian Griffin. 30-13 and 13 in his first season. Adrian Wojnarowski saying the Bucks had a tight window, needed to do something. Punch it. Yeah, I think this was an agonizing decision for this Milwaukee organization. They were very fond of Adrian Griffin. They gave him his first head coaching opportunity this offseason. Uh, but they looked at where this team was, how it was responding under Griffin. Mm. Although the second best record right now, you mentioned 30-13, and 13, that they have such a tight championship window with Giannis Antetokounmpo, certainly the Damian Lillard trade, you know, which happened after uh, they hired Griffin as head coach. And they made a decision to make, to, to make the change. They uh, told Adrian Griffin of that just within the last hour, I'm told, that he's out. And this is a Milwaukee team uh, that you have seen at every turn uh, trying to maximize, again, this championship window. And they make a really difficult decision today to move on. Yeah, make the decision to uh, move on and look. This is an organization that that does look a little lost to me. You know, they they fire their last coach who took them to the NBA Finals, and they fire him and say, you know, we're going to move in another direction because you just didn't get it done. And now the guy that they brought in afterwards, they have uh, you know just a really short le- leash 
and don't give him any sort of opportunity to really find momentum and connect with the locker room. And I keep looking at, you know, just in 2021, the Milwaukee Bucks were the NBA champions. And, you know, Mike Budenholzer was the coach, and life was good. Do you give coach? And here they are. Do you give the Bucks any credit for making them making a tough decision like this early on if they really felt like Adrian Griffin wasn't the guy? Yeah, yes, you have to. And it's one of the things I talk about when I I'll tell people like I do this talk where I if I go talk to a school or a group and I'll and I'll say, look, the the tenets of winners it's you always see the same things in a winning championship locker room. If you went to Michigan's locker room, and you study what Jim Harbaugh was doing, you would find these same things. Winners will pivot when they make a mistake. Losers will write it out and go, yeah, but we're stuck with this. It's going to look bad. But winners will pivot. And so I do want to chalk this up as maybe a little bit of an example of the Milwaukee Bucks realized they made a mistake. But I also want to say, let's see. (laughs) Because if they also fire the next guy after 40 games then it's them but i just think it's it's really interesting and damian lillard's in the middle of it isn't he 100 percent, he is right in the middle in my opinion because the bucks were an elite i mean not just a good an elite defensive team you know the last five seasons and now dame gets there and all of a sudden they're in the bottom 10 in the nba i'm not saying it's dame's fault but that's the one big difference they trade away their best on-ball defender in drew holiday maybe one of the best on-ball defenders of all time and they get a guy in Damian Lillard who has never been a good defender. So, I mean, that's the real big difference. And we'll find out. We'll find out if it was Griffin or if it's the players uh, the rest of this season once they bring in a new coach. Yeah, I don't know. You know, we've talked about Damian Lillard as a defender. This this Bucks team, 22nd in the NBA in defensive efficiency. I just don't know if a team that plays Damian Lillard can be a great defensive team. I just don't. I don't think that can be a thing. Pivoting to the NFL playoffs, the 49ers in the NFC Championship game. Brock Purdy's been taking a lot of heat. Dan Orlovsky talking about the performance of the 49ers quarterback. Punch it. He was bad for the first three quarters until he needed to be great, and he was. And I think that's going to bode them well in this game. I think that bode them, bodes them well if they can get to the Super Bowl, and it's certainly going to bode him and them well in his future. He hasn't like been in that moment. He was a little bit in the Cleveland game, you know, and he leads them to the field goal and they miss it. But this was a, hey, if you lose this game, you go home. This isn't, well, we'll learn from it and move on. And he was bad. Now, I don't know how much of it was the weather. I think that certainly plays its part. I think sometimes as media members, we like to swing from one end of the pendulum to the other and talk in absolutes. The truth is Brock Purdy's a distributor for the 49ers. It doesn't need to be all on him. And it's neither all his fault or none of his fault. The truth is always somewhere in the middle. I still don't think the problem's solved with Purdy. And part of it is, I'm not sure Kyle Shanahan has the kind of confidence in his players that championship coaches need to have. I would love to be wrong about that. I'd love to see it in the NFC title game. But I felt the Niners getting a little tight in this game. And and I think they won the game, and it felt like you know they kind of played and rallied at the end. But I just saw some things from Kyle Shanahan that I can't help but wonder if Brock Purdy and his teammates are feeling. Like when he plays kind of not to lose, 
before the end of the first half. Like, what message is that sending to your offense when you're, you know, you're going conservative and you're saying, I don't want to give the other team the ball in a possession. I, I've always paid attention to that stuff from the press box, and I'm kind of watching the Niners here, and I'd like to see them come back in this title game and play like they know they're the best team. And they're the better team, and we're you know we're going to do what we do, and you're going to have to adjust to it. I didn't see a lot of that in the divisional round. I saw a lot of reactive, defensive play calling and defensive play. Lewis Riddick talking about Purdy. He does not think Purdy's the weak link on the Niners, and he points out a weak link that I don't think a lot of people talk about: the 49ers' right side of their offensive line, their guard, and their right tackle not the strongest two players on their team lewis riddick talking about it punch it see, see again see now we're crossing into that realm of i gotta blame somebody i gotta put somebody down i gotta talk crap about somebody the guy had was having a historic season historic season yeah okay he's as efficient as they come ask kyle shanahan whether or not he thinks that he's the weak link of his football team you can point to a number of different players. How about the right side of their offensive line? Keep an eye on that position group this, this Sunday when they go against uh, Aiden Hutchinson. Yeah. Keep an eye on Colton McEvitt when he's lined up against Aiden Hutchinson one-on-one. If you want to find a weak link. Ooh. Okay, Brock Purdy. Come on. Come on. He's not the weak link. Diehard Niner fans who watch them week in and week out know there's a little bit of a problem on the right side of that 49ers offensive line. And it doesn't really rear its head until you get to this point of the season. When you are lining up in the last two or three games of the year, including the Super Bowl, against teams that have a defensive front that can make your life miserable. Keep an eye on that, but I, I expect, like, you know, any update on Debo Samuel yet, Stephen? I don't uh, think we have one yet. No, no, no real uh, definitive update yet on Debo. And I, I would say this, John, I think you as a 49er fan, the one thing you'd worry about how the Lions are going to win is causing a turnover, cause pressure on Brock Purdy. If what Lewis Riddick says comes true and Aiden Hutchinson you know puts pressure on that's the way the 49ers are going to lose the game is by Brock Purdy throwing some interceptions getting sacked maybe fumbling so I, I, I would just, ask you I, that's a real that's a real thr- a real concern of yours on the right side nah, of the offensive line I, I think it's a concern against the Ravens it's a concern against the Cleveland Browns you know with their defensive front it frankly was a concern last season with the Eagles but I don't think the Lions are that team and, and I think the Niners just have too much firepower. I think the 49ers are going to the Super Bowl, and I think they're going to play the Ravens. And I then let's revisit it because I think it's a whole other equation, and I think a lot of the problems that Brock Purdy had on Christmas Day stemmed from pressure. You saw, you know, he was throwing passes. The defensive line was getting their hands up. It was, you know, a couple of them were his fault, a couple of them weren't, but he didn't look comfortable. And I think he'll be more comfortable against the Lions than he will be in a potential Super Bowl the, game. The quarterback talk is so fascinating to me in these games. If you had to rank the four quarterbacks, how, how would you rank them? I'm going uh, Patrick Mahomes one. I'm going Lamar Jackson if he's on two. I'm going Purdy three, Goff four. Yeah, I don't I don't know what I would do. I feel like the way Goff's been playing, I might put him at three, even maybe at two over Lamar, but I love Lamar, so... I. It's fascinating because some people would have Brock Purdy, you know, number two because he was almost in the MVP, and someone have him at four. I just we're gonna find out a lot this weekend. I think about what Brock Purdy really is, and if we really trust that guy. And I think Purdy is the guy that I kind of worry about on this stage, of if there is gonna be, you know, we had that which quarterback is most prone to have a meltdown conversation last week, and 
I kind of think Purdy is the guy I'm watching going, if there's going to be a massive meltdown, it's that guy. Because I've seen him do it. I saw him do it against the Ravens. He had a bad game. And he melted down. But Lamar Jackson is so up and down. And, you know, does, is he going to throw for 300 or 150? You know, like, and, you know, is he going to be a problem running the football or not? And, you know, against the Texans, he didn't have great passing yards. But, damn, he ran 11 times for 100 yards and two touchdowns. And, yeah. you know, come on. Like, I mean, that's such an X factor to be able to do that. And I think with the 49ers-Lions game, it'll be nice to know that the weather shouldn't be bad. So both Goff and Purdy don't have that excuse of, you know, it was raining out bad weather. It should be, you know, 60, no wind is what the uh, condition is supposed to be. NFL broadcast teams took some heat over the divisional playoff broadcasts. We had John Strong, the voice of American soccer, Fox Sports, on yesterday's show to kind of talk about broadcasting. He spoke to the discourse around the NFL broadcast teams. Punch it. This is such a subjective thing. And, you know, it is. It's like music. It's like movies. You could put 100 people in a room, and you could get 100 different, oftentimes very passionate opinions about Jim Nance or Tony Romo or Joe Buck. Think about the amount of negativity he's received over the years from people or any any announcer. It's hard to really pin this down sometimes. The, the other issue has been not just social media, but you have this cottage industry that's developed over the last five, ten years of sports media critics, websites like Awful Announcing, that just sort of have amplified this conversation. It'll be Jim Nance and Tony Romo on the Chiefs-Ravens game. It'll be Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson on the Lions 49ers game. Olson speaking about it. Punch it. I'm a big believer that we need to continue to educate the viewer why teams are doing this. I think you can't just say this is the right move and then just leave it dangling. Because if I'm a fan at home, tell me what the coach is considering. Tell me what the conversations during the week that have led up to this moment what is the back and forth? What are the two sides? So I, I think the context of the decision is the important part. What the coach does, right or wrong, he's going to do. And not everyone goes by the book and not everybody goes by the old conventional, you know, old school model. So to me, it's more important not saying, hey, this is what the coach has to do, but it's saying this is what they're debating. This is the two sides of the, this coin. And that's why this is the kind of the new way that teams are playing the game of football, and whether people like it or not, it's real. Yeah, look, uh, I like what Olsen's saying there because what I'm looking for from Tony Romo or Greg Olson in that situation is make me smarter, tell me something I don't know, take me somewhere I haven't been and can't see. Nothing worse to me than watching, you know, apologies to Mark Helfrich, but when he's on a college game, he's not educating me, and I want to get in his ear and go, Helf, give me some of that football you know. You know, and instead of telling me what I just saw, because I just saw it, I don't need you to tell me what I just saw. Like, take me somewhere that I've never been. And so, you know, you got Nance and Romo on the AFC title game. You got Burkhardt and Olsen on the NFC championship game. Which of those crews is better, Steven? Who's better? Burkhart and Olsen are newer, but I think I'm going to lean Burkhart and Olsen. I, I like what Greg Olsen, what he does on the broadcast. I like what he said right there because you're right. I want to hear what the coaching staff has been talking about all week. I want to hear the insight from a football player's perspective. Greg Olsen played. I, I didn't. So, like, I want to hear what they're talking about during the week and what goes into these type of decisions. I don't need you to tell me what to do because I have my own opinion on that. I want to hear what their thought process is. Yeah, and I think, I think I'll go with Romo and, and Nance. 
but I need Nance to pipe down a little bit. I need him to like just chill. Let Tony be Tony, because I feel like they're not as. I, I think there's better synergy on the NFC crew that you mentioned, but I like Romo. Romo to me puts it over the top. Some parting thoughts, and Stephen and I are going to make our picks for the NFC and AFC championship games next. I only give out winners on this show. (laughs) I only give out winners. The AFC championship game coming up this weekend will feature Chiefs at Ravens, noon Pacific time. Jim Nance, Tony Romo, among others on the call. 49ers-Lions, Fox, 3.30. Kevin Burkhardt and Greg Olson on the call in the NFC championship game. Stephen and I are going to give our can't-miss NFL winners, including the point spreads. Currently, the Ravens, let's start with the AFC title game since it's at noon. The Ravens are a a three-and-a-half-point favorite at home against Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Over-under is 44-and-a-half. Steven, who do you like and what's the bet? Again, I, I'm I'm going to feel dumb when this doesn't win, but I'm going to go with the Ravens. I'm going to lay the points against Patrick Mahomes and Andy <laughs> oh. Reid. I can't. I I just, I just don't know. Are the Chiefs really actually that great? I mean, they had a, their their best offensive game by far all season long last week against the Bills, and the Bills probably should have won the game. So I just think with Baltimore being at home, uh, I think this is Lamar Jackson's time. He looked very good in the second half. It was one of those things, John, where that first half against the Texans, I thought, oh man, maybe Lamar does have a playoff problem. But then they came out in the second half, I guess him and Harbaugh, you know, the coaching staff, they got into it, they yelled at each other, and it made him better. They looked great in the second half. I think he'll be ready to go and not have that you know, little rustiness they had in the first half against the Texans. I think they'll be, uh, they'll be good to go. That Chiefs defense, a little leaky against the Bills. It scares me a little bit if I'm a Chiefs fan, but uh, I think the Ravens win. I think the Ravens cover. I like Baltimore to get the Super Bowl. It's interesting because I find, you know, there's context now. We're at the end of the season. We know the Lions are good. We know the Ravens are good. We know the Chiefs are good. We know the Niners are good. We didn't know that in week one when the Lions beat the Chiefs 21-20. Remember that? Uh, and we didn't know that even, you know, as the Niners were playing the Ravens late late in the year on Christmas Day. Like, could these teams play in the Super Bowl? We didn't know for sure. But I look at the Chiefs' losses this year. The Chiefs lost uh, that game I mentioned against the Lions. They lost to the Packers, and they lost to the Bills. They lost to the Raiders, uncharacteristic. I think the one thing that I like about the Chiefs is defensively, you know, they don't give up 30 points. They they score in the 20s. I think this game's going to be closer than expected. I still like the Ravens to win, but I'll take the three and a half. And Patrick Mahomes, even on the road, I think Baltimore wins the game, but I think it's really close, and I think it's a good game, and I think it's a typical NFL game, one possession at the end. I just think Lamar Jackson and the Ravens have a little better team. Pivoting to the NFC, I'll go first on this one since you went first. I'm a Niner honk. I like this team. I don't think they need Debo Samuel to win against the Lions. I The seven-point spread... I don't love. I liked it better when it was six and a half. I probably would take the Niners at six and a half. I think seven's about right. I also think the over-under on this game is at 51 right now. I kind of think it's going to go under that. I think the Lions are going to have a little more trouble scoring than than uh, they have in some other weeks. 
But I think this game is like right around 44 points, 45 points. So the bet, I think, is the under 51. But I, I think San Francisco wins the game. I think I feel pretty good about the Niners winning that game and advancing to the Super Bowl. I think it's Ravens-Niners in the Super Bowl. What do you got? Uh, I'm with you. I think the 49ers win, but I'm going to take the points. I'm going to take the seven points to the Lions. Um, this is one of those games. I do think the Lions are live in this game to win. I, I think the 49ers are going to win the game, but I think Detroit can win. And the reason why is Dan Campbell, the way he coaches, we've seen that he goes for the win. He is not afraid to go for it on fourth down, and that can either be really good or really bad. So, you know, it may be early in the game. It's a fourth and two at, you know, the 50-yard line. Campbell's going to go, and maybe they don't get it, and then it gives the 49ers a good field position, and it gets them momentum, gets them rolling, and maybe it's a blowout for the 49ers. But on the other hand, Lions get it. Maybe they can build some momentum, and they can score some points that they weren't expecting to. So I think the fact that the running game for the Detroit Lions is really good with Dave Montgomery, Jameer Gibbs, I think they're really good. Amon Ross St. Brown, I think he is going to eat on the outside. He's going to get some, you know, a lot of catches in this game back in uh, California for him. I like the Lions to keep it close, and I think uh, Detroit has a chance to win this game. But uh, if I have to pick the winner, I'm going to pick the 49ers, so I'm with you. 49ers-Ravens in the Super Bowl in Vegas. All right, Super Bowl in Vegas, 49ers, Ravens, and I know that you know it would not happen until February 11th uh, is your Super Bowl. So a lot to talk about and unpack. But if you had to make a pick now, I think the Ravens are going to be about a three, three-and-a-half-point favorite in that Super Bowl if they're in there against the Niners. And I would, I, right now, I can't unsee what happened on Christmas Day. As much of a Niner fan as I am, I think the Ravens might be the best team in football right now. I don't disagree with you. I think I would take the points in that situation. If it was three and a half, I think I would take the 49ers. And it is tough to unsee what happened on Christmas Day because that was – it was bad for the Niners. But you go back and you look at some of the some of the stats and some of the play-by-play of that game. It was a game at halftime. It was a close game, and Brock Purdy had thrown interceptions. Purdy ends up with four picks thrown in that game, and then the Ravens kind of dominated. But they were 49ers, even though Purdy had thrown, I think, three uh, first-half interceptions, they were down by two, I believe, at halftime. And so I I think the 49ers, they would have something different for the game plan. And I think the Ravens would too, but I think it would be a really good game. I would take the 49ers and the points. I I would pick the 49ers to win the Super Bowl over the Baltimore Ravens right now. But uh, we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens when we get there. Let's see how the health is. But I, I would like the I'd like the Niners over the Ravens. I just don't I, I think I don't think the Niners need Debo Samuel to beat the Lions. Maybe I'm underestimating the Lions. Maybe it's what we talked about a week ago, where like you just can't see the Lions as they are because there's just been decades of losing and you that's all you can see is Andre Ware and Chuck Long and Joey Harrington struggling and you know you can't you can't hardly remember Barry Sanders and and now this team comes along and it's pretty good like this is a really good team it's a solid team they got a quarterback that can play and some nice pieces and a coach that certainly believes in his team but just can't unsee all of the losing that the Detroit Lions have done over those years. And I just think the Niners are just a more complete, better team. And I think all year long I was looking forward to seeing the Eagles and the Niners in the NFC title game or the Cowboys and the Niners. Instead, it's the Detroit Lions. I kind of think if there's going to be a blowout, that um, the Niners are that team to to issue the blowout. I think Patrick Mahomes will keep the AFC title game close. And I, I was looking on you know, DraftKings or FanDuel, whatever the in-state betting app was. I was looking at it on the commercial break, and there were some alternate spreads. And, you know, if you're going to pick a blowout, Stephen, and you're going to give 
13 points, which game feels like it's more likely to be a blowout? I would go with the Niners-Lions, and I think it's for the reason of the way Dan Campbell coaches that team and being aggressive. I think it could backfire in their faces, and that could be a problem going forward. I think with Mahomes, you kind of I, I, I get the feeling that they're going to be in the ballgame no matter what. Even if they have a tough game offensively, somehow Mahomes is going to keep it going forward. It, it just reminds me of like the Patriots back in the day with Brady and Belichick. Like You knew they were going to be in the game no matter what. You had to put them away at some point, but it was never going to be a blowout. I think the Niners have a chance to blow out the Lions if there's some aggressiveness that doesn't work out. I think uh, this show has been all over the place and not in a bad way. I've loved it. Grab the podcast of it. Share it with your friends. If you missed the interview at 4 o'clock with Dean Tolson, the former NBA player, who went from being an illiterate NBA player to being a graduate who has now written a book and is preaching about his story, go back if for no other reason listen to that part of the show. It was fantastic. We're back tomorrow with another great show. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.